Greetings and welcome to the Uncensored Humanity Podcast. If you're new to the show, this is a long-form podcast where I sit down with guests and we just have a conversation. Now, these conversations are not scripted. They are raw and real. There's no editing. So wherever they go, they go. So hopefully you guys will enjoy the conversations as much as I know that I will. This episode is brought to us by Mike the Strongman. Are you tired of getting your training and nutrition advice from someone with only a weekend certification? Then perhaps it's time to turn to someone with over 15 years of research-based experience. Mike the Strongman can help you with all your training and nutrition needs. Mike has a proven track record of getting results with his clients. Visit MikeTheStrongMan.com for more information or email Mike at MikeTheStrongMan at gmail.com if you're ready to take your performance to the next level. This episode is also brought to us by the Healthiest You Chiropractic Center. The Healthiest You Chiropractic Center in Strongsville, Ohio is dedicated to giving their patient community the highest level of healthcare. Their doctors have been trained on the newest and most innovative styles of chiropractic and rehabilitative treatments. From back pain to ankle strains, the Healthiest You has remedies for a variety of injuries. Are you looking to perform better in life and activity? Their team takes a wellness-based approach on health rather than only focusing on symptoms such as pain. Call 440-238-3338 or email them at thychiro, that's T-H-Y-C-H-I-R-O, at gmail.com for questions about becoming a patient. Now is a better time than ever to become the healthiest you. And last but not least, this episode is brought to us by CrossFit Strongsville. CrossFit Strongsville is a place where everyday people become heroes every day. Through qualified coaching, challenging yet modifiable exercise programming, and a supportive community unlike any other, members find a way to break through personal barriers physically, mentally, and emotionally. No matter what level you're at, from the very beginner to the elite, you'll find you receive great service from the moment you walk through the door, and we promise it will be one of the best hours of your day. Check out CrossFitStrongsville.com for more information and to sign up for a free one-on-one consultation with the owner, a 12-year veteran of the fitness and therapy fields. Okay, folks, today we sat down with my weightlifting coach, Dan Bell. We, uh, we both had a couple of beers and we just sat down to bullshit and we had a great time and there, there's nothing quite better than sitting down with coach having a beer because he likes to talk and I, I like to talk, so we, we always have a good time. So we got in the weeds a little bit. We had some fun. We, t- we talked a lot about his past and how he got started into strength sports all the way from lifting stones in the park to lifting at Westside Barbell to coaching former Olympian Holly Mangold, founding Columbus Weightlifting and working on the uh, the Arnold Weightlifting Championships with Mark Canella. You know, we, we kind of covered it all. So without any further ado, please sit back, strap in and enjoy our conversation. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Uncensored Humanity. Today I'm very excited to sit down with my coach, uh, Daniel Bell. Dan, how are we doing? Good so far. Good so far. <laughs> well, we just started, so that's good. <laughs> so uh, Dan is my Olympic weightlifting coach, and that I would say is kind of your profession. That's kind of what you do other than that general handyman things around here. For the last week and a half, yes. yes I'm a professional coach. Professional. <laughs> So today we're just going to sit down and just have some fun and kind of get to know you a little bit. Is that okay. all right? Sure. Excellent. So I guess the the biggest question is, is kind of like a little bit who you are and how did you get into weightlifting? Oh, how did I get into weightlifting? Okay. When, when did you start lifting? I got my first weeder set. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> my first weeder course 
because he had started to supplant the York courses of the 60s okay. in, in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, you know, I got the posters with the guys doing leg curls with the iron boots. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and the adjustable dumbbells, and my parents got me. The cement-filled ones? Yeah, uh, cement-filled Sears plastic weights. I had those a, in my basement growing up. With the hollow tube bench. Oh, yeah. That, you know, you could bench up to 110 pounds with some degree of safety <laughs> if you put it together right. Yeah, those benches were a little <laughs> shaky in the beginning. But, you know, I, I started lifting weights off and on there, more off than on. So how, how old were you then? 11, 12. Okay. Um, so it would have been 1968 or so. Now, were you doing it just in the basement to have fun, or was it for sports or anything? It was or? in my room, and I don't know if I could tell you why I was doing it. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, most kids that age or teenagers start out of insecurity, and I'm sure that's why I started. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, because everyone <laughs> wants to look better, feel better, so and lifting weights can really help with that. So, Well, yeah, it's true. Uh, I, well, I grew up in an alcoholic home. My father was occasionally violent, so that probably had something to do with it. <laughs> Learning how to kind of fend for yourself a little bit is always a good thing. Yeah. So uh, then uh, – Got into high school sports. We had a weight room. It was a universal machine. Almost useless, but it did something. <laughs> um, then a friend uh, moved out from Cleveland. He was a wrestler at St. Joe's, but he moved out to my high school, Grand Valley. Started hanging out with him. He used to work out in his room, and we started doing benches, presses, curls. Didn't okay. do squats. Well, yeah. I mean, He was a 132-pound wrestler with legs not as big as my arms are now. <laughs> so, and, sorry, Dan, but they're not that big. I know. <laughs> <laughs> he was a 300-bencher, and I don't think he could squat half that. <laughs> but, He's kind of missing the whole idea here. But he, he got me going, you know, lifting more seriously. Then I went in the Army, and all of it fell by the wayside, although I did stumble into a base weight room once or twice. Well, you guys do a lot of more calisthenics in the military. Not a lot of weight training, right? Uh, right. Okay. Right. I was in a mortar crew, so I had to carry heavy shit. So yeah. I got I got plenty of walking with weights. This is why I just don't program that now and don't fucking like it. Yeah, because it's, <laughs> it's kind of bad for your hips. Well, you know, the lightest in a 80, 81 millimeter mortar, the lightest piece is, I think, the bipod, which weighs 79 pounds. Okay. The, I forget what the tube and the base plate weigh, but they all feel heavy as shit when you're going 15 miles with them. Yeah. <laughs> So <laughs> just a little bit. Um, let's see. What, what sports did you play in school? Uh, well, since there were about 30 athletes, male athletes in my whole high school, we all played most of them. Okay. I played football in the fall. I wrestled in the winter, played baseball in the spring, and I started practicing for football. Okay. So. Now, did you play sports um, like in elementary school, junior high, all that kind of stuff? Or did... uh, just just football in junior high. Okay. Even just like backyard stuff playing around? Oh, Always yeah. doing stuff. For... We constantly invented games. I mean, I I played uh, little league baseball. I played baseball from uh, ten years old all the way through high school. Okay. Uh, you were a catcher, right? Uh, well, let's see. I was a first baseman uh, in little league, I think, and uh, uh, pony league, and I started being a catcher in high school. Yeah. Okay. Actually, uh, senior little league. It was like for thirteen to fifteen year olds. I started catching there. Okay. What was catching the catching from first base? Just because they needed someone, or you just liked it more? Or? Uh, because our catcher didn't show up one day. <laughs> and they said, who wants to try this? And I was standing next to all the catching gear and said, eh, fuck it, I'll try it. <laughs> <laughs> and we happened to have a knuckleballer as our best pitcher. Okay. And I now, Is that like just an off-speed pitch? Or is that – I mean, obviously, it's a pitch with no spin. Yeah, right? but – 
it's it's a very slow pitch, but thrown properly, the ball moves all over the place. Okay. And if a if so, a, so it's it's not so much an off speed as it's meant to be thrown slow. Well, it, it, I just don't know a lot about baseball. <laughs> so, um, it the fact that it doesn't spin, the it has weird resi- air resistance across the yeah. seams, and so it doesn't have a predictable path. Um, the pitcher, the hitter, the catcher, we all have no fucking idea. Where the <laughs> so nobody really knows where it's going. Uh, I, I, my job half the time was swat the ball down in the dirt and keep it in front of me. Yeah, so that people so are running bases. I had bruises on the inside of my arms, on my shoulders, you know. <laughs> occasionally it would bounce off the plate and come up under my cup. But, you know. Never a good time. Yeah. When His name was Harry Humphreys. When, when he was on, he was unhittable. When he wasn't. <laughs> you just walked everybody? <laughs> oh, I was diving all over the place. Trying to... <laughs> and because uh, the pitch is so slow, I got stolen upon more. Th- and I also have a terrible arm. No one ever taught me properly how to throw from, you know, from my knees or from a low position yeah. to throw people out. So I was stolen on in two years, probably more than any other catcher for four years. <laughs> now, you think that's just a fact that people just don't know how to teach things properly? So that was, I hate to say it, but a lot of times, especially in youth sports, like you, they pretty much just have chaperones. They don't really have coaches. They just have people who are willing to put up with the kids, and unfortunately today more the parents than the kids, because the kids are usually pretty good. It's the parents that can be assholes. But is it just a more fact that there wasn't anybody who qualified to teach you, or they just didn't know, or? How? Well, the lower the lower level you go, the poorer the coaching. Okay. I mean, that's just a fact of life. You run yeah. into a really good coach at a low level, you're lucky. You know, if you walk in the door as a new football player and you've got like three former pro football players on the staff as your coaches. That's all. I mean, well, I mean, that means they know how to do the job really well, but does that mean that they're actually a good coach? Cause I know a lot of people who are really good at sports, but are not good coaches. Well, you don't get to the pro level without picking up a lot of skills okay. and a lot of tips, okay. knowing how defenses work. I mean, but that's just an example in high school. Coaching is everything. Yes. You know, if, you know, if you, you take the coaches from St. Ignatius and put them in my little high school and then take that coaching staff and put them in St. Ignatius, they would switch records tomorrow. Okay. So it's all the coaching. It's not the kids. Yeah. Well, because the coaching makes the players at that level. Okay. You know, the people at Menor and, and St. Ignatius, people at St. V, they're always going to get freak athletes. Um, but it's the average athlete that tells you whether you're going to win games or not. If you, have a, you put a D1 athlete on a small school team, like my old school, Grand Valley, you're going to win five or six games just based on that one guy yeah, or two guys like that. But if you don't have good average players, you know, you're not going to win many more than that. Okay. You know, those players that come up in systems like, you know, Mentor or uh, Glen Oak or, you know, McKinley, I mean, they have skills by the time they get out of junior high that I never acquired as a high school player. And it's all just from the coaching, you think? It's just from coaching. Okay. Yeah. So how do they find good coaches for these kind of positions? Or they just kind of develop as they kind of go Well, along? football's so popular. Every, there's coaches all over the place. Ohio is a big football school. Yeah. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting a football coach. <laughs> <laughs> this is very true. But, you know, so and then they just, you know, the fan out the, the Benjamins. <laughs> hey would you like to come work for us yeah help us win yeah. championships <laughs> we need a gym coach oh yeah who makes one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars a year 
So, you know, that's how. Yeah. Fair enough. In, in sports like ours, like weightlifting, it just doesn't work like that. No, not at all. No. You know, I'm now a professional coach because I may make six or $700 a month, you know, if I work it right. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get, the, we'll get that number going out so we actually kind of make a living. But <laughs> so, so you had problems in baseball with just arm strength. Did you, did you hurt it maybe because you didn't learn how to throw properly or I tore up my shoulder because I didn't learn to throw properly? Okay. So just the wrong mechanics and led yeah. to injury. I didn't have a strong arm. Um, so bad mechanics, not a naturally strong arm anyway. Now, if you would have gone back through and done some strengthening stuff for your shoulders, would that have helped a lot? Oh, if I'd been, if I had a, a, a good strength training program as I was going through, somebody knew what they were doing, which when I was in high school, there was no such thing as strength coaches in high school. Yeah. They were, it bare- was still pretty new when I was going through high school. Oh, Bill Starr. I don't think Bill Starr had written his book, The Strongest Shall Survive, yet. He was like the first professional strength coach, I think, at University of Hawaii, and that was mid to late 70s. Now, was he a football coach? or no. I, I've read some articles from him, but I don't really know too much about him. Bill Starr was an Olympic weightlifter. He was, he, he was with um, York. Okay. And he wrote for York. Actually, he was at York the same time as Lou DeMarco was there. Okay. You know, and if you... What is it? If you read the book Muscle Town USA, um, fascinating. I've given Louie a bunch of shit about that because <laughs> apparently um, Star and some of the other athletes didn't think they were being treated right um, by oh, who ran York back then. I have no idea. He basically ran weightlifting. Okay. But they started stealing equipment from York and they sent it to Louie out here in Ohio and he'd fence it. <laughs> <laughs> When they finally got busted, they had to pay it all back. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how that works. when you steal To avoid bad, prison. Yeah, bad things happen. Yeah. <laughs> Hoffman. It's Bob Hoffman. Bob Hoffman. Yeah. Okay, I've, I've heard that name. So, so, oh, he, he was, so he ran York. Yeah, yeah. York Barbell, Strength and Health Magazine. Basically, he made sure weightlifting had enough popularity through his magazine, Strength and Health, that we had decent teams. Okay. So after World War II, um, when most of the world's surviving men were rebuilding their countries and ours hadn't actually been touched, we dominated weightlifting. Um, but it's like Bob Ticano says, as soon as they found food, they started beating us. <laughs> <laughs> well, growing up in a situation like that kind of makes you a little bit more resilient. So Hungry. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, you know, they found drugs before we did. <laughs> There's some of that, yes. But that's not an excuse because during the 60s and 70s, we had drugs too. I mean, Dianabol was invented by Doc Ziegler at York. You know, we had the best drugs, but the Russians had a better system and more research and they had better technique. So, you know, they, they, as they figured out how to use the drugs, figured out what was the most efficient technique how to best train for strength combined with the, with good technique and good drugs. Yeah. You know, our haphazard guys training in their basement, you know, doing the best they can system just got crushed. Yeah. It can only take you so far. Yeah. That atmosphere means a lot in any kind of sport, you know, which is why people go off to training camps and they, in any sport really nowadays, they, they always have camps like that. Whereas if you go out and you separate, you separate yourself from everybody else, you can all kind of work together you can get a lot more accomplished than you can just, you know, do it on your own yeah. like whenever you feel like it. Yeah. 
And I think, well, one of the reasons, I mean, this, I think about it, this club really has only been going like a re, as a real thing three or four years. And nobody in the club. No, no, this club you obviously mean. Rubber City Weightlifting. Oh, Rubber City Weightlifting, Which is the, yeah. the club that you're a coach of. Yeah. Now, how did Rubber City Weightlifting get started? Um, Mike Walker called me out of the blue one day and said, hey, you're a weightlifting coach, aren't you? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, off and on, at, sure. At the time, were you coaching? Uh, nobody. I just, I met my wife, moved down here from the farm up in Ashtabula County. Okay. Hadn't started coaching anybody, and I thought, yeah, I'll go coach one guy. He's all the way up in Akron, so twice a week I'd drive up there to uh, Bodybuilder's Gym uh, up on Talmadge and, you know, coach Mike on the one crooked platform with the ancient <laughs> set. Yeah. Um, and pretty soon, uh, Phil Martyr, who was in the same gym, um, he started training with us. Um, then Colin joined in and I had three. Yep. It's like, and it just sort of snowballed from there. Yeah. And those, those three were kind of the founding, you know, guys, I guess, and yeah. who brought you in and just started working with those guys and it's kind of bloomed to what it is today. Yeah. We we can get back to that in a little bit here, but so after after high school, were you still lifting after high school through all that kind of stuff? It was off and on. Okay. Um, when I got out of the army, I lifted some. I played rugby for a year with uh, Akron's men's side. Okay. B side. That was a that was semi pro, right? Or no, no, I didn't get anything. Okay. No, there was a few like. Uh, a uh, few guys on the A side who had played for the Browns. Okay. So, you know, that was the level of athlete that played for the A side. <laughs> I was a B side guy, especially, you know, in any sport like that experience is huge. Yes. You know, and I almost got in a huge fight when we, our B side played Toledo. So you have the C side game, the B side game, and then the A side game in the early afternoon. So we're playing the B side game and, uh, there's a scrum near the sideline and their scrum half gets the ball. Um, he does a little shoulder fake to the wide side. I don't bite. He goes to the sideline, and there's a, I don't know, four or five-yard gap between the scrum and the sideline. He's going to zip up the sideline. I was a high school linebacker. I just used the sideline. He came up sideline sprint, and I just rolled my shoulder right into his thighs and, you know, sent him ass over heels into the <laughs> sideline, landing on his head because, you know, good tackle. Yeah. In football. <laughs> but in rugby <laughs> – <laughs> it's an assault on their honor because you're supposed to rap. <laughs> Most of his team came after me. Was, my team jumped in between. It's like, he doesn't know anything. It's his first game. <laughs> He's like, still learning. So, like, they're explaining to me as I'm going back, you know, away from this, you know, potential fight, how I'm supposed to tackle. I said, well, it would have been good if you guys explained this to me in practice. <laughs> yeah, that would have been handy, guys. Well, you didn't do that to one of our guys, so we were okay. <laughs> So, um, I lifted some for that, played soccer for four or five years um, with a bunch of, let's see, some Scotsmen, some Irishmen. So, guys who knew what they were Germans. doing grew up playing the sport. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But by this time, I was starting to get into training more. Um, I actually had uh, Stephen Vandermont was uh, – his father was the, uh, the steel maker at a local steel plant. They'd come over from um, Scotland. And he was our center midfielder, you know, um, a good pub level player there, almost a professional here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because nobody really plays a lot of soccer. So he taught me soccer, but he was like 140 pounds at 5'10". 
And you know, is, is that a normal size for those guys? Or a little bit heavier than that. No, that's probably one of the reasons he wasn't a pro. Because <laughs> he wasn't heavy enough. Yeah, not strong enough, which okay. made him not quite fast enough. You know, speeds just like American football. Speeds huge in European football, but. So he was getting 50-50 balls he's chasing down with these big Americans. He's getting run right off the ball because he's not strong enough. Okay. So over the winter, I took him down to my neighbor's basement because my mom's basement is dirt and four feet high. <laughs> and the More of a crawl space than a basement. Neighbors had concrete, fancy. <laughs> so we'd work out down there, and over the winter, I got him up to 190 pounds. You know, he got up to a, like a 350 squat for five. He got pretty strong. Yeah. And he just destroyed people the next year. Now, how'd you do that in a season? That's Squats. A, that's a lot of weight to put on. 50 pounds? Uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, squat, squats and food. Well, yeah, but. He had six months of squats and food. <laughs> and he'd never touched a barbell before. Okay. The beginner effect's a real thing. Oh, yeah, it's great. Because when you first start, you make gains every week. And it's amazing. Like, this is amazing. It's going to go on forever. Like, I, well, no, not really. But ride it now while you can. Yeah. Because eventually it'll stop. He was a good athlete. Um, he, Even though he was skinny, he tended to lean, lean towards the mesomorphic, you know, the naturally muscular. Yeah. So he put on muscle really easily every every gram of protein he ate turned into muscle somewhere. okay and you know i had him squatting ass to calves and you know we did a little bit of benching and some rows but really basic multi-joint barbell movements yeah, which is all you really need you don't need all these fancy and at the time all i really knew <laughs> <laughs> which is good because the more you know the more you realize that's really what you need to do yeah that's what works you, you know you start expanding your repertoire and then chiseling away at it and yeah. tearing it down yeah you're, you're not gonna stand on a bosu ball and get super strong no sorry guys not gonna happen it's a gimmick you sell that kind of shit on tv to to dumb white people but <laughs> <laughs> that shit doesn't work <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. Um Yeah, so uh yeah, next season I well, I, that was a that was a, a really good demonstration for me of the effect of strength training on a sport that has nothing to do with the weight room. Yeah, because it's all just about being a better athlete. If you become a better athlete and obviously a stronger athlete is a better athlete, you know, you'll be better at what you do. So there's a there's I mean there's a point of diminishing returns, but of up to a certain point, stronger is faster. It's quicker, you know, it's more endurance, you know, the first and most important thing you can do to make anybody a better athlete is make them stronger. Yes. Now you see a lot of kids today who do a lot of sports specific training. They do a lot of drills. They do lots and lots of work on what they're doing, but they don't exactly do anything in the weight room, you know, that means anything if, if they do go in. You know, do you think that's like a huge problem today with like youth sports? Maybe why we have a lot of injuries that we do. Uh, well, we could certainly introduce, you know, properly implemented strength training much earlier. Okay. I mean, it didn't. Um, uh, this is something I never understood. Why we have no problem putting pads on kids and letting them run full speed into each other on a football field, but squats in the weight room might stunt their growth or yeah. hurt them. Um, get them in the weight room much sooner. Get them technically sound, structurally sound. But the biggest thing is teaching them all the skills and drills of their sport and not letting them play. And I've said this to a few people. I have, I mean, I really don't have you know, any evidence to back this up other than my impression. But I think the average athlete when I was a kid in the 60s and 70s is a much better athlete than the average athlete now. I would have to agree because a lot of those kids, well, like you, played a lot of different sports. You know, so you understand a lot more of what you're doing with your body, how to work things, 
you know, and t- kids today, like they only ever play one sport. Like they do it all year round now. It's it's well, so crazy. You know, you'll see a kid in high school dive for a ball now, and the fans go nuts. Like the you know diving for a catch was just this amazing thing that only freak athletes do. Fuck, when I was a kid, we all dove for shit. Yeah. We dove for shit, didn't get hurt, got up, kept playing. (laughs) I see a lot of people get hurt, like making diving stops or diving catches now. You shouldn't get hurt diving for stuff. It should be a natural thing. You can just land, you know, get back up, up. keep playing. Yeah. We've all done this as kids, playing outside, doing stuff. You know, I had to dive to make tackles and dive to make catches because I lacked the extra step and a half I needed to be a better player. <laughs> I did a lot of diving. So you weren't, you weren't fast <laughs> enough? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's too slow. Yeah. Well, you know, that one uh, kid I trained ended up playing linebacker at Allegheny. Uh, he was Division three all-conference, I think third-team All-American middle linebacker. 6'1", 235. I watched him hand clean with straps, 350 for five with really nice technique. Whoa, that's yeah. a lot of weight. Oh, he's a beast. You know, he could, he'd do a set of 10, ask the Cavs uh, with 500 in the back squat. Just, you know, and when he hit people, you could hear it blocks away. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a pad crack explosion. That is a solid dude. Yep. And so his little brother asked him, well, why, you know, he just graduated. He said, why aren't you going to get drafted? And he said, well, because when I'm at the hash marks, those guys are at the sideline. <laughs> That's why. Yeah. Yeah. The difference in the athleticism between high school and college is ginormous. Obviously, oh, yeah. college athletes are so much bigger, faster, stronger in almost any sport. You know, then you go from that to pro, it's, it's, it's even more of a gap. Yeah. You know, so like your average guy who played high school football or baseball or whatever and thought that he was king shit in his high school full of like, you know, his graduating class of 75 to 150 people. It's like, who cares? Like, good for you, man. But any, you know, D-level college guys going to kick your ass. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And then let alone the pros. I mean, holy goodness. <laughs> but, you know, the the guys who can make the transition, you know, the freak athlete in high school, um, they, if they did nothing to get ready for the next level, they didn't build work habits. They weren't coachable. Um, it's going to be a shock to everybody who goes from, you know, even from Massillon to Ohio State. And some of them aren't going to make it. They won't be able to stand the shock. You know, they won't understand what they have to do to be at that level what they were in high school. Yeah. And they'll just fall by the wayside or they'll fall to fourth on the depth chart. Well, unfortunately, it's pretty it's pretty common. You see a lot of those same guys who never had to work super hard in high school because they were just better than everybody else. Yeah, it's like, dude, you get the next level, you got to work your ass off just to be normal. Yeah, just to get on special teams. Yeah, you know? like to get some playing time, not just stand on the sidelines every game. Well, if you get to dress and stand on the sidelines, <laughs> <laughs> this is very true. Yeah, but you know the and I've I've had a couple of friends play pro ball and they tell me that they're there for every guy in the nfl there's 10 guys on the street with the physical ability to do it absolutely but they don't have the head for it yeah and i've said that about weightlifting you know physical talent for this sport's not rare it's just not you know i can take any number of different people physically and teach them the skills and they can get strong enough and if they stuck with it they they would get there most people don't it takes years to get good at this. Yeah. Years. And they just don't have the head to stay with it. They, f- they can't deal with the frustrations. They can't deal with the setbacks. 
You know, they can't deal with the fact that it's not a clear and simple path from A to B where I'm successful, (laughs) you know. And, you know, for every 10 that come in the door, maybe one has the head for it. Now, how do you develop more of the the head game for athletes? I don't think you do. You don't? No. You have or you don't. Okay. I am not an inspirational coach. I am not a motivator. I mean, I can can offer some guidance on that, things to focus on, things to mostly – attitudes to try to eliminate but i mean if you don't have my wife and i were talking about this this morning you know there's people with that competitive drive that will deal with the bullshit and there's people who can't okay and you know and there's there's nothing wrong with that go lead a perfectly normal life and play recreational sports and enjoy your life you only get so much time i've stopped trying to recruit people into the club and I've started to try to talk them out of it. Okay. I've literally told a couple of people last time, after they've been here for a few weeks, if you don't have to be here, if if you don't wake up in the middle of the night thinking about this, you know, if you if you wake up and you can't wait to get to the gym, that's great. You should be here. I'm sorry. You know, there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering in your future, <laughs> but that's what you need to deal with it. You know, if you can take this or leave this or you find this too difficult, you know, if there's other things you find just as interesting, go do that. Yeah. Don't do this. <laughs> it's it's long and painful and boring. If you can't deal with monotony, weightlifting <laughs> is not for you. Yeah. It's like my wife and my stepdaughters make fun of me because I like vanilla ice cream. I just like vanilla. But I, I, I don't want stuff in it. You know, I, I don't want swirls or chunks or sauces. <laughs> I like good vanilla ice cream, very high quality. And I have since I was, you know, two feet tall. And I will till I die. <laughs> Every time I have it, I can just have vanilla. I really love and appreciate that. I don't need the variety. Basically, weightlifting is vanilla ice cream for people. <laughs> if you can't stand the monotony of this training, if you need constant variety and you know, new exercises and 73 different exercises to have PRs in. Go do something else. <laughs> this is not me. for you. <laughs> There's CrossFit, you know, powerlifting's interesting, although the same kind of monotony applies. <laughs> well, yeah, but you get to do a little bit more, especially with accessories and stuff like that. So, I mean, obviously competing and doing the three main lifts is still a lot the same, but there's still yeah. a little bit more variety. Yeah, yeah. Not much, but a little bit. A little bit more. And usually it's enough for some people because a lot of, like um, – Chris's coach, Brandon, you know, he, he does uh, some strongman stuff once a week, you know, because it's like, it, it changes training up a little bit. It's a little bit more fun, you know, but he's still doing his main lifts, but they're also, he's just kind of treating them like accessory work and some conditioning. Well, at, as a weightlifting coach, I think I could program more variety, especially in prep phases. Yes. Um, and more conditioning work. You know, I don't want to push that too hard. Um, and then maintain better conditioning, but you get into a competition cycle, you know, two or three of those years, six to eight, 10 weeks long, it's lifts and squats, lifts and squats, lifts and squats. Oh, and by the way, here's some lifts and squats. (laughs) (laughs) That's just kind of what it takes. Yeah. How long do I have to do this? Years. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what depends? Like, how good do you want to be? (laughs) You want to be okay? Do that three or four years. You want to be really good? Uh, Like eight to 10. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) 
This is kind of how that works. Plan on taking as long as it took a major league pitcher to become a major league pitcher. Yeah, most of those guys started when they were, what, 10, 11, 12, about the same time you started lifting, probably. Uh And And by the time they break into the majors, 22, 23 years old. Yeah, and these guys have focused on their craft intently. You know, for years, and that's something that most normal people can't understand because, like, oh, well, he's wasting his life and he's doing this and that. Like, that's all fine and dandy, but to him, it's not a waste because he loves it. It's something he has to do. It's not something he can give or take, just like you had just said. You know, it's like it's something that he probably goes to bed thinking about, waking up thinking about, has dreams about, most likely because it's on his mind. Yep. You know. Yep. But I'm I'm not so sure. I believe that. You either have the mental capacity or you don't. Because I, I truly believe that you can learn that if you choose to. But it's like anything else. You've got to be willing to put yourself through it enough to be able to learn what you need to learn. And right there, you either have that or you don't. Well, yes. <laughs> no, I mean, but it's obviously, it's, it's not like you're born, a doctor slaps you on the ass, you know, and says, hey, you, you know, you, you've got that ability. I can't, I can't tell you where that comes from. I can't tell you what gives it to you yeah. or what process instills that in you. But I can point to people who have it, and I can point to people who don't. And the people who don't, I have been – maybe it's my a shortcoming of mine as a coach. I've been unable to bring that out of them or give that to them. You know, and maybe that's something you need to work on more to, to do that. But like you said, the athletes you get to work with, luckily, they, they choose your sport. They want to be doing what they want to do at your gym, which is what you tell them to do. Well, I guess you don't really tell them to do it. You just kind of instruct them how to do it properly, I guess. But – they already kind of want it, you know, so they're already kind of there halfway, you know, but I just, I, I, I wonder if, I, I personally believe that youth sports is a great way to teach life lessons to kids. Yeah. You know, and not just this kind of quality, just over, just be a good human, learn how to win, learn how to lose, learn how to work with a team, learn how to, you know, not, not cry and fuss when you don't get your way when you lose, like that kind of shit happens in life. It's just kind of how it works. You know, but I also do believe that you can definitely, you know, bring that out of yourself, but you kind of have to learn that and want it for for you, I guess. If there's if there's anything that I thought I've I've been able to pass along or that might work or like a mental approach, it's that convincing people to take themselves seriously. If you're if you're in this Take yourself seriously. Take your goals, you know, make your goals important. Be serious about it. I mean, you can joke around and fuck around in the gym. You can take a one-hour workout and make it three hours long. Um, But, you know, start taking yourself seriously. The more seriously you take yourself and your goals, the more you treat them that way, the the things you're supposed to do with seriousness. You know, if you take yourself seriously as a, as a competitive athlete, you pay attention to the little things outside the gym and which aren't little things they are huge things. You know, instead of going out three nights a week, Thursday's the new Friday, you know, Thursday's the new Monday. <laughs> <laughs> you know what the new Friday is? The night after you finish your drop, your last clean and jerk at national. Yeah. You get after that. After a big competition. You get that Friday. And then the one after the AO. <laughs> 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 Those are your two a year. Yeah. And that and then back to work. Take yourself seriously. You know, 
it's such a hassle to write down what I eat because then I have to keep track and know how much I'm getting. Well, your weight's fluctuating down two or three kilograms and up two or three kilograms, and you whine and complain when your strength goes down and then goes back up unpredictably <laughs> with the three kilos you just gained back. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how that works. Yeah. So, uh, you know, take yourself seriously. If you're going to do this, and I, I just, I dug up, and found the mission statement for Rubber City Weightlifting. I put it back up by the sign, mostly to remind me because it keeps me focused, yes. which helps keep the Because when focused. you're focused, everybody else in the gym is focused. Cause exactly. As I've, as I've said before, that, that place rises and falls on your leadership. So the more focused you are on the club, the better the club is going to do. Exactly. Period. And, you know, uh, I was in the, working out with my wife this morning, and one of the powerlifters came over and looked at it. And it's simple. I stripped it down to as simple and direct as possible. The mission of Rubber City Weightlifting is to, to develop athletes to the national and international level. We will keep what serves that goal and discard what does not. If it pushes you that direction, keep it. If it pushes you away, fucking get rid of it. Yep. <laughs> you know, and you can have friends in the club and it can be a big part of your social life. And you can look better and maybe get a six-pack, depending on where you are in your weight class. Yeah. You, know, you should not be cutting calories to do that. Yeah, there's all kinds of side benefits, but keep your eyes on the goal. And if you're in this club, the goal is, you know, win. Keep moving up. Keep moving your total up. Qualify for nationals. Qualify for the AO. Qualify for juniors. Go lift in front of people who are serious. Go lift with people who are serious. And keep moving up. You can choose to do a lot of different things with your life. And, you know, uh, you know, they're all more, they're all pretty valid. They all waste, they all waste the same amount of time. <laughs> you know, I want to be, I want to be, you know, the tyrant of Russia. Good goal. <laughs> you know, it gives, it gives, gives something for people to work against. <laughs> you know, you can, there's a lot of time to kill between birth and death. If you're lucky, you know, find something that makes you happy or satisfied doing it yeah i you know if you're a great athlete i hope it's weightlifting but i'm not going to talk you into that boy that was a tangent where no were no, we? no this is good <laughs> this is quality information this is why i don't want to have an actual structured podcast oh because we can't get into stuff like that if we don't allow ourselves to go down that road it's like i hope that everyone in our club listens to that because that is such wisdom coming from you right there that, that was that was great so to get to get back on the track yeah okay. <laughs> so so you, you got down with school you played some rugby you're playing some soccer we trained some guys now how did you get into training these guys were they just guys that you were playing sports with so it was like hey i'm lifting come lift with me let's we'll make you better yeah. is this something that you just gravitated towards or? well they saw that i was fairly strong they said well how'd you get that way okay well i did this can i do that with you yeah. <laughs> so you, you didn't really so go, go to them and say, hey, I could help you. I could do this or that. No. They, they kind of came to you and said, hey, I like the results that you have. How do I get that for myself? I was in my early 20s. The, the very essence of self-absorption. <laughs> Helping others, going to them to purposely make them better. Yeah. The, not that I thought that was a bad thing. The thought just would never have occurred to me. My every thought was about me and what I'm doing. Because <laughs> when you're in your 20s, that's how it works. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Early 20s. By late 20s, you're supposed to get over that. Took me late 30s. Yeah, some people don't get that as quickly. <laughs> no. <laughs> unfortunately. But that's all right. It's, 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 
their own process. They'll get there when they're ready. Yeah. And they'll realize, I was such an asshole. Oh. Yes. Yes, you were. I still remember at 19, uh, Bill Bradford, and I've prob- I think I've told you about this guy before. Bill Bradford was a um, phys ed teacher and, and strength coach, one of the first high school strength coaches in DeLand, Florida, DeLand High School. It's right next like to- One of the first strength coaches in the country. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, uh, Arthur Jones had his uh, Nautilus plant uh, in Lake, uh, I forget, Lake Wales or, it's very near DeLand. And Bradford and Arthur were really good friends. In fact, he arranged a, to have Mercury Morris give me and a friend a tour of the Nautilus plant. Okay. Which was awesome. Got to see Arthur Jones' crocodile, like from <laughs> me to you. Oh, that's cool. It's like, he has a f- fucking pet crocodile. This guy's weird. <laughs> and he was. <laughs> well, yeah, you'd kind of have to be to have something that could kill you as a pet. Yeah. It was a 14-footer, too. Jesus. <laughs> um, but Bill Bradford, uh, in Florida at the time, and I might still do this, I don't know, the, the football coaches in the state off-season had a kind of an interscholastic sport to keep their um, football players lifting. It was a um, power clean and bench press contest. And they had, they arranged, you know, it was a, it was, there was a state championship in it and it was a big deal down there. Bill Bradford's team at DeLand won that 13 straight years. Okay. 13 years. He turned out 400 benchers and 500 squatters out of high school like that was just a regular thing. What, 19 years old, I was telling him how to train people. <laughs> <laughs> or may, no, I might have been 21. Because yeah, I was still in the Army at 19. Because obviously you know better, right? <clears throat> oh, I was reading all the shiny bodybuilding magazines. Why aren't <laughs> these guys training six days on a double split? This should be buy and try day. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're going to squat and bench today. You know, what's tomorrow? Squat and power cleans. Because <laughs> they were probably on what? A three-day cycle most likely they train three days his gym was only open three days yeah well, so like, what course, do you do how do you train the other days well they mostly don't <laughs> it was either they're resting or they're probably off playing sports or doing drills or doing whatever they even do. even off season yeah said, well you know a lot of them go to a rec center and do some uh like bodybuilding stuff but we do the big things squatting deadlifting power cleans bench press you know dips overhead pressing we do all that in, in his little quonset hut well, that's, was, a, that's the great thing about those kind of simple movements is you don't need a lot of equipment, you know, and there's no secret to it. You just got to put in a bunch of work to get really strong. No. Well, when I was hiking the Appalachian Trail, you know, I noticed my arms were disappearing over two months of just walking and it drove me nuts. So, cause my arms are naturally skinny anyway. Okay. I have to kill myself to get them up to 15 and a half inches. Which is huge. There's a lot of eighth <laughs> graders start there. <laughs> <laughs> so I started doing pull-ups on tree branches and I would pick up boulders and hug them to my chest and do squats holding the boulder. Okay. Just so I didn't lose muscle while backpacking. Now, what were you doing backpacking? Uh, my girlfriend at the time and I wanted to, I like outdoors. I like hiking. Well, what, what got you into the Appalachian Trail? I mean, for some people who don't know, what, what is that? The Appalachian Trail is an unbroken system of trails between, I think it's Half Dome and Georgia mountain in Georgia. Okay. Follows the Appalachian mountains all the way up to Katahdin, Mount Katahdin in Maine. It goes all the way to Maine. Yeah. Oh, wow. So the whole eastern coast of the U.S. Pretty much. Yeah. So how far did you get on the hike? Uh, well, we didn't We, we didn't have time to do the whole trail. If you're going to do the whole trail, you got to hump. You got to do 20 miles a day and you have to start in April and you'll finish in early September. Um, 
we just wanted to do the like more or less the New England section. So okay. we, we started in Connecticut, just south of Massachusetts, hiked through Western Massachusetts, um, Vermont, New Hampshire, and about half of Maine. And were you were you living there at the time, or did you guys travel no. out there just to do that? Travel out there just to do that. Okay. Now, now how, how did that work out? feasible and you guys like just drive out park and then walk away from your car no my right my brother drove us out there his his girlfriend at the time dropped us off said see ya (laughs) (laughs) start walking have fun (laughs) you know (laughs) and the appalachian trail is there's almost no point on the trail especially up there towards in new england where you're more than seven or eight miles from like a village or a town yeah and often you're usually never more than about three miles from a road. Okay. Uh, it feels like, you know, they try to take it through the most wilderness areas they can, but it's one of the most traveled, tra- you know, backpacking trails in the world. Yeah. It seems like a lot of people even just go do a section of it for a weekend or something. Yeah. Just, hey, I want to go do part of the Appalachian Trail or take a week and on vacation and go do something. And so it sounds pretty cool like that for just average people just out for a hike, but to get dropped off for how, how long were you out? Two and a half months. That's that's pretty hardcore to go out there for that long. It never occurred to me that it was hardcore. It sounded like fun. No, and, and I get that. <laughs> but for, for most people who, you know, get out of college and get a job and are paying down their debt and doing those kind of things, they, they can't, you know, they don't have that time to be able to go out there and, and go out there for two months and just freaking walk through the woods, essentially. Well, that's, that's the beauty of being in your early 20s. Exactly. I didn't have any debt uh, or own anything. Everything I had fit in a duffel bag. So that wasn't a big change for me. <laughs> to put the duffel bag on my back with my house. Yeah, a little <laughs> and walk and walk. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Sounds like it. Uh, have, you, have you gone back to do anything else with the Appalachian Trail? Was that the only trip you took there? No, I've been back and forth. Like uh, last year, Melissa and I went into the Adirondacks, which is that part of New York is not too far from where the Appalachian Trail goes through. Okay. She climbed her first mountain ever. Uh, we went up Cascade Mountain, um, which reminded me how awful how god awful eastern trails are western trails are well built it's scree like small small gravel the the switchbacks are nice and easy you know you go up the side of a mountain you know it's a it's a very easy grade and they go back and forth up the mountain um eastern switchbacks basically followed old animal trails game trails some indian trails you know some of them feel like they go straight up the, <laughs> the ridge, straight down the other side, then straight up the next ridge. Oh, God. And this trail, it's one of the most heavily traveled um, trails in New York. And we would have been better to take out a machete and bushwhack our way to the top of this thing because it looked like a boulder-filled dry wash for four miles uphill. And that was her first mountain. First mountain ever. What are you doing to her, Dan? <laughs> and what? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm an old fat guy and I was out of shape, but my friend Marty, who owns a farm where I work sometimes up in uh, Ashtonville County, fell off a wagon and broke her hip like eight weeks before we were going on this vacation because we had planned to get in shape. We were going to get in shape. Yeah. We'll walk. We'll lose weight. We weren't doing that shit. No, that's usually how <clears> it works. But then I had to go up and work the farm virtually every day for six weeks, which meant moving cattle and moving fence several times a week. And walking miles at a time doing yeah. it. So you kind of did your training that way. I got in great shape. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't lose a lot of weight, but I got in great shape. Um, so that wasn't too bad. But that trail was still just brutal. So we get to the top. 
near the top. We get up to the point where it's tree line. And this, this mountain top actually isn't high enough to be above tree line, but the top burned off a few decades ago to bare rock. And it's high enough that it was never able to grow back. Okay. Um, so it's bare rock for the last half mile or so. And you can see all around you. Um, and there's some hand over hand stuff. There's no technical climbing, you know, there's no mountaineering involved, but there's some hand over foot scrambles up a few places. Okay. And we get to this point where we had to do some hand over foot scrambling over rocks and boulders to get to the very peak. And she says, I may not have ever told you this, but I'm afraid of heights. It's a heck of a good time to tell you. We're 4,000 feet in the air. I mean, if you fall down here, you're only going to fall as far as if you fell in your kitchen. (laughs) You know, it's not like we're walking a razorback ridge in the Himalayas. Yeah, it's not like that. No. But still. But still. But she sucked it up and, you know, a couple places I had to stand below her and use my hands as footholds so that she could get up and I'd scramble up after her. Okay. But she made it to the top. Good for her. Got pictures of her with the, the USGS benchmark. I don't know if you've ever seen the benchmarks uh-uh. the Geological Survey put out. Nope. It's a brass stamp on a peg that's anchored in rock that literally, you'll if you get on a, a contour map, like the USGS maps, uh-huh. um, there'll be a little X and it'll say BM benchmark and it'll give the number of the benchmark. So when you're standing on that benchmark in real life, you know that's exactly where you are on the map. And they use them for reference points in map making. Okay. But, you know, she was there at the top of the mountain. There was a benchmark. Got a Which picture is of cool. Because you got to go to it to see it. So you, yep. That's really cool. Benchmark, her face in the picture right there. <laughs> Physical proof she climbed a 4,000-foot mountain. <laughs> Very cool. So, uh, yeah, I've always, you know, I grew up in the, the country. I worked on farms growing up. I just I've always had an affinity for nature. I was a biology major. Now, did you grow up on a farm? No, no. Okay. no. So small, you just worked on farms? Small towns surrounded by farms. Okay. You know, probably three quarters of my high school was kids from dairy farms. Which is a tough life because you can't be too far from the cows because they always need milk. Every single day, yeah. 365. I don't understand how people choose that life. No, it's it's a tough life. There there were maybe, f- there's more than 400 dairy farms in, in Ashtabula County when I was growing up. There's fewer than 50 now. If you don't have a 650 cow herd, you can't milk and make a living unless you're doing organic or selling to the local cheese factory. Yeah. It's real hard. Yeah. It's, it's brutal out there for farmers, especially now. If you don't have huge, you know, acreage anymore, you know, so you just, you just don't make it. Yeah. But there, there are people, you know, who didn't grow up on farms deciding they're going to become a farmer and finding money somewhere and buying farmland and figuring out how to farm. They're the ones that you see at the farmer's markets. They they can't do what you think of as conventional farming now, where you're planting a rotation of corn, soybeans, oats, and hay. Yeah. You have to do something different than what, you know, what, the, um, what the market will allow. Yeah. So Marty raises grass-fed beef. Ashtabula County, uh, south end of Ashtabula County, is just terrible land. You know, it's, it's shitty for crops. Um, but it grows grass. And so... Cows eat grass. Cows turn grass into human food. <laughs> <laughs> That's something that always, has always bothered me, the vegan and vegetarian argument that, uh, you know, you can grow so much more food if you didn't put cattle on land. 
cattle in a lot of places in the world are the only thing that can turn that land, make that land useful, produce food yeah. for humans. Yeah, anything useful. Yeah. You know, there's there's land out there that can't grow anything but tough grass. Now, I was just recently down in Texas, and they've got cows roaming all over down there because they can't grow crops, but they can grow grass. So they, Not very, they so, don't grow that very well either. <laughs> so, I mean, you will know, but the cattle just roam around and eat the grass, and it's like nothing else bloody grows. Yeah, what you can do on 300 acres in Florida or Ohio or Indiana takes 3,000 acres in West Texas. Yeah, this is very true. Takes a lot more land. Yeah. But land is worth a lot less down there because <laughs> there's a lot more of it. I mean, if, there's not a whole lot you can do with it. If you it. can find a big market for rattlesnakes, <laughs> you got some valuable territory down there. Otherwise, no, <laughs> not so good. So, so getting back into you training people. So, is any other kind of sports that you got into like there in your twenties or uh, just the rugby late, and late twenties? I got into powerlifting. Okay, so that's when you got into powerlifting at a place called Banks Powerlifting Gym on Indianola in Columbus. When okay. I was down there for, I was going to school at Ohio State in the mid eighties. No, late eighties. Okay, now for people, who sometimes don't... it gets hard to remember your own life. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, <laughs> a little bit. So for people who don't know, powerlifting is squat, bench, and deadlift, deadlift. Yeah. and it's. It's a competition that people go and you put up a total and then the highest number of each lift is added to your total to get a, a raw number. So a lot of guys, are actually, they all compete in kilos, but they all lift in pounds because that's what people are used to here in the States. Yeah. You know, so a lot of them will go for like a thousand or two thousand pound total depending on your level. If you're kind of starting off, you're like, hey, I'm going to try to get to the thousand. But if you're really good, you're kind of going for a two thousand pound total. Right. Which for most humans, when they see that, they're like, Holy shit, that's a lot of weight. Yeah, you know? two thousand back then, two thousand pound totals were not common. There was no. you know, ten or twenty guys in the world hitting two thousand pound totals. As it should be, yeah. because those are the kind of the elite of the elite. Yeah, and but the, that's way back are... when you, you know, took your bar out of squat racks, walked it out, squatted, then walked it back in. You know, like Fred Hatfield did, like Lee Moran did, like you know. The guy, the first thousand pound squatters, they walked that shit out, squatted below parallel, like for real. Yeah. And then walked that shit back in. <laughs> I, the, the crane that lowers the bar on people, what do they call that? The monolift. Yeah, the mo that just drives me nuts. Well, it doesn't lower it on you so much as it, it sets it at the height and you stand under it, you lift it off, and then the hooks move away. It's what hold the bar. So you don't have to move your feet at all. Don't move at all. You literally just squat, stand back up. They call it a good lift. They move the hooks back in. You just put it right back down, which which is honestly pretty funny because a lot of times people who don't have never lifted a monolift before and go to their first meet, as they're setting it up, they set it up like they would a normal squat rack. Okay, so they'll they'll, they'll pull it out. They'll move the hooks away. They'll squat. They'll come back up, put the hooks back, and then go to dump the weight. But usually the hooks a little bit higher because you kind of settle down a little bit in your squat. So usually the bar's a little bit lower. Uh -huh. So unfortunately, they usually dump the weight then. <laughs> either hurt themselves or hurt somebody else some guys kind of comical and worst but, of all no lift yeah yeah there, there's <laughs> that you know but so that can be kind of funny but so what, what got you into powerlifting then from all the sports you were playing uh i figured out i like picking up heavy shit okay because you've been doing it for a while anyway yeah i liked picking up everything especially like deadlifting you know but i liked picking up heavy things um a terrible bencher. My arms are way too long. Which is probably why you were good at deadlifting. Yeah. 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 
It's give and take like anything else. Yep. You know, good deadlifter, okay squatter, shitty, shitty bencher. With a bench shirt, my best bench ever is 320. Like with a shirt. Yeah. <laughs> so what, so what, what's the shirt for people who don't know what that is? Oh, bench shirt. It's a real tight shirt made of non-stretch material that gets tighter across the chest as you lower the bar towards your chest. And that forcing non-elastic material to contract, you know, stretch and contract it like that, um, helps you drive up more weight. Bench shirts really only help you the first two or three inches off your chest. So it's just to kind of get it off your chest. And the rest of it, you have to do it all yourself, right? Which is why, you know, people, I don't understand this, people doing board presses and things like that, you know, as part of a strength training program. There's, the whole reason for doing those is to shorten the range of motion to work the muscles that really have to work after the shirt is done, which is front delts and triceps. You know, you need to work the finishing muscles because the shirt takes care of the first two or three inches. After that, when your triceps really come into it, your front delts really come into it to push the bar back over your shoulders. Yeah. You know, if you don't have those, when the shirt's done, you're done. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> like the only time I've ever seen geared lifting, I just shook my head. And I'm like, this is freaking ridiculous. Because there, there was some little guy who couldn't have been five, six, five, seven. He was short, you know, and he was, he was jacked, had a huge chest, big arms, legs were okay. needed to squat more, you know, but he lays down for his bench. He's got his bench shirt on. So his shoulders are all rolled forward. He's, he's walking like a, like a, like a brand new recruit out of the, you know, police academy. He's like with a, with a big chest and the arms forward, you know, and, with imaginary lat syndrome. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the imaginary muscles, you know, and, and he lays down on the bench and he gets, and he has like 800 pounds on the bar. You know, and he, he takes it off and they help him in and, and he lowers it down and he literally couldn't touch his chest because his shirt was on. And it was restricting the re, you know, movement so much he literally couldn't bring the bar to his chest. And then they would jump to like 850 or something ridiculous. And then he touched his chest and moved to half an inch and they had to take it from him because it wasn't going anywhere. I'm like, this is absolutely ridiculous. Why, why can't we just see who lifts the most weight? That's that's why. Yeah, I I heard this when I, first when I was at Westside Barbell for a short time, and I heard it many times since. It took me years to figure this out. People constantly saying, "You need strong lats to bench. You need strong lats to bench." Well, that's, those are not even close to the prime movers in the bench. No. And why do you need strong? Well, I finally figured out you need strong lats because with a bench shirt. You literally have to pull the bar yeah. down with your lats. Row it into to, you. You have to row it to your chest. Yeah. You're working against – not only are you not benching it, you're literally doing the opposing movement to pull the bar down to where it touches so it's a legal bench. Now, now, granted, I still row the bar into me as I bench, but I do that more to kind of stay tight and solid because obviously I don't bench with a shirt or anything. So I'm still just pulling it down and just kind of using that tension to kind of wind everything up and then kind of shoot out of the hole. Well, that, you know? they, that technique may have developed out of the bench shirt stuff. Possibly. But, but yeah. I mean, but it's, it's again, it's, it's just more of just kind of staying tight and taut and getting a good drive out of the hole because in competition, you have to pause on your chest. Sure. Which, which messes a lot of people up because they're used to just bouncing it off their rib cage <laughs> and throwing the weight back up. Yeah, that's just poor training. Well, there's poor, that. Poor coaching. This, this is not a big surprise. Because even if you're training for football, you shouldn't be benching like that. No, because there's no purpose. I think probably one of the hardest things to 
teach young guys to stop training your ego and start training your body. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Teach that to eighteen-year-old men. Yeah, they're, they are here. not men. No, okay, good no, point. They're boys. Nobody's a man at eighteen. <laughs> you know, and, and unless you grew up a child soldier. <laughs> That could be a possibility. And then you're a man. You're just a wildly fucked up man. Yeah. <laughs> Who's going to have major trauma later in life you're going to have to learn how to deal with. Yeah. Because <laughs> that shit will come back to haunt you. Yeah. If you live. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you started powerlifting. Where, where were you at? You said Banks? Banks Powerlifting Gym. Where was that at? Uh, Columbus. Okay. Down in Columbus. Um, he, was, he, he, had, he was a facilities guy at Ohio State. And he liked powerlifting. Did it in his basement. Um, good bencher. He was a 500 bencher. Um, but he went past the Ohio state, the Woody Hayes athletic facility, um, which is a different building then than it is now. Cause they have a even bigger, better one. And there's all these benches and racks and bars and plates out by the dumpster. And he went, you know, this, you could actually go up and talk to the strength coach those days, you know, like, knock on the door, go in and find him. Yeah. <laughs> and he did. And he said, what is all that stuff doing out there? He said, you know, we can't keep it. We got to get rid of it. If we, if we give it away or sell it, it's going to affect our budget. But if we keep it, they're going to lower our budget. We have to buy new stuff every three years or every two years or our budget goes down. Okay. So we throw it out. Did you want it? You know, if somebody, if somebody backed a truck up to it in the middle of the night and took it, I wouldn't know that it wasn't the trash company that took it. And that's how he, that's how he filled his gym so with equipment. Gym. It was good stuff. That's amazing. Paint chipped, couple, you know. A couple years old, who cares? It, exactly. It was like all York stuff. So good quality stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. And, you know. So how'd you find out about his place then? Is it just uh, driving by one day? Just and drove by and saw it. And like, hey, I'm gonna go lift some stuff. Let's go. He didn't give it a complex name, you know, like you know, uh, unequivalent extreme training or some shit like that. It said <laughs> Banks Powerlifting Gym. Oh, I know what that is. Yeah, I'll try that. That's, that's good marketing. It's simple. <laughs> it's concise. You tell your clients exactly what it is. And the letters on the sign were big enough to read, and the sentences short enough you could read it driving by. Yeah. <laughs> So, so how long did you train in there? Year, year and a half. Okay. And he finally decided to shut it down. There's too much work for him or? Too much work with his job too. Okay. Um, and by that time I had met Amy Weisberger, who was a world champion powerlifter with Westside. And she talked me, talked Louie into letting me come in and try at Westside. And that's down at Columbus as well. Yeah. Back when it was, you know in a former convenience store, like shotgun strip yeah. mall space. Freaking dungeon. Yeah. It, you know? And a lot of people don't understand is like Louis Simmons runs West side and he started it, you know, just because of, he needed a place to work out. Right. Or yeah. Yeah. I, I forget exactly, but it's always been a private club. It's never been public. Yeah. It's, you, by, it's always been invitation. Yeah, only. So you had to essentially get on someone's good graces to get yourself in there. You don't just walk in and say, Hey, I'm looking for a gym. Can I just train with you guys? Like fuck off, get out. Yeah. Yeah. And I always worried that I lowered, I lowered Amy's reputation within the gym when she brought me in there. Just cause you weren't very good or I was not very good and I wouldn't get on shit. Okay. So you wouldn't get on drugs. Right. So if you're not going to be on shit, they really didn't consider you serious. Okay. You know, cause because of course, if you're going to be serious, you got to do what it takes to win. And drugs is what it takes. Like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I understand that a lot of the guys do drugs, but 
it's it's cheating. So it's like, well, actually, you kinda can't do that. That isn't the problem I have with it then, because it it wasn't banned in his federation. Oh, really? And they weren't. Well, it's still illegal, is it not? It was illegal then. This, people still don't take it seriously as an illegal drug. You know, uh, USADA does, USA Anti-Doping Administration. Um, uh, but, you know, like he had uh, four or five cops. Two of them worked on the vice squad. And they were all on What's shit. the vice squad? Oh, uh, drugs, sex. Oh, okay. Um, they, they <laughs> so, spoke, so they probably got theirs from bus. Oh, hey. They actually did. Shocker. Yeah. And, you know, it would be dealers they didn't know who weren't their dealers. You know, and if they were assholes, they'd pop them, skim stuff off the top of their stuff, turn in, this is what we caught him with. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm throwing This in my stuff trunk. fell in my trunk. <laughs> Oops. How'd that happen? You know, so, I mean, the cops in Louis' gym were on shit, so, and they're on the vice squad, so it's hard to take it's illegal seriously. Yeah. Um, and... I, this is just a side note. I get why there are cops who do the stuff. If being bigger and stronger is going to save you or your partner's life or another life, you're going to do what it takes to get there. And absolutely. It's, it's a little different when your life is on the line, you know, cause like if I go to work, you know, the worst thing that's going to happen is the copier is going to break. The network's going to be down. You know, my <laughs> boss is going to yell at me. When those guys go to work, they wonder if they're going to come home to see their family again. So yeah. I, I kind of get that. Give them a pass. No big deal. I've got no problem with it. Now, I will say I do have a problem with it if they're doing it in a sport where it's illegal. Yeah. So if they're, if they're in a drug-tested sport and they're taking drugs, fuck them. Well, there's a bit of hypocrisy involved now, too. You're taking an illegal drug and rationalizing it. So this law is not right, so I'm not going to obey it. But this law is absolute, and I have to enforce it. <laughs> no. And and this is up against the fact that barbell training works, whether you use drugs or not. They can be bigger and stronger and fitter and handle 90% per, percent of the situations out there with the body they can get naturally. The excuse that they need steroids, you need steroids to be with the elite who are using drugs. You're not facing elite guys out there in the street. Most if, likely not. You know, you're facing some skinny drug dealer with a gun. And all the steroids in the world is not going to make you bulletproof. Yeah, it's not going to stop a bullet. No. So I, I, I don't buy that excuse. You know, you're... You're out there to enforce the law, and you are not. You're breaking this law and enforcing that law based on your judgment of what you think is right. Yeah. That's why we have courts, judges, and legislators, not your hula hoop. Exactly. <laughs> so get off that shit and quit rationalizing it. <laughs> so how long were you at Westside then? Not a year. I oh, really? Think. Yeah. Just because you didn't last, you left, or they kind of... Screwed you uh, out the door a little bit. I was I was struggling to get stronger. It was four days a week. I mean, you have this. You have Louis has this system, and he was still. I mean, he's always been refining the system. It's way different now than it was back in the early nineties, um, as best I can tell. And he's constantly refining the system, but it was more or less the conjugate method then. You had a you had a max effort day and a dynamic day. You know, basically an absolute strength day. And a speed slash hyper, hyper, hypertrophy day. Okay. Um, 
and it was just crushing me. I had a, I had a very physical job. I, I was framing houses. So I was humping lumber all day and driving nails by hand and then going in and training. And I'd gotten to a decent list before I got there. I mean, I, I, I back squatted 500, deadlifted a little over 500, um, benching high 200s, you know, 300, which is strong for a drug-free guy. Compared to the average guy in the street, I was yeah. really strong. Yeah, most guys who go to the gym randomly would think that's pretty strong. Yeah, but there, you know, if you're not, if you're not a 757 guy, you know, who fucking cares? Yeah. <laughs> but they'll give you a chance to get there. But after several months of training and my total had gone up, I don't know, 50 pounds, Louis came to me one day and he said, look, you know, there's two or three new people. Um, we're voting this weekend. Or no, in a month. We're voting in a month. And if your total isn't up 125 pounds, he said, by the end of the month, you're out. And... I had Amy went around and did an informal poll of all the votes. All the men were voting against me. All the women were voting for me because <laughs> apparently they wanted one halfway nice guy to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> Which isn't a good reason to keep me around. Not really, but yes, yes, it also is because you also want a good training environment. You don't want too I much d- to ask. Well, the other thing is, you know, I just couldn't relate to those guys. They're, you know, it was a lot of faux tough guy posturing, a lot of puffery, you know, a lot of growling. Unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that you see in gyms like that, that people kind of associate with the from the Planet Fitness commercials, a lunk. Yeah, you know, the, the, the big meathead lifter yeah. guy. And it's like, no, we're not all like that. There are some like that, of course. But yeah. there's some assholes like that that, you know, are in business or play sports or do anything else. I mean... They're just everywhere. There's nothing you can well, do about that. Like them lifting has nothing to do with them being an asshole. They're just an asshole. At the time, I, I kind of broke down the people in the gym into three groups. Um, lifters on their way to prison. <laughs> lifters just out of prison. Or in Chuck Vogapol's case and a couple other guys, the prison guys who guards. Work, the guys who worked at the prison. <laughs> were, guys who worked at the prison. Now, essentially, <laughs> they're still in prison. They just get to go home and sleep at night. Exactly. That's the only difference. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're in the same atmosphere, the same environment, the same bullshit workplace. You know, and they're worried about getting shanked and beaten and raped and all these kind of things, just like the prisoners are. No, I got. I think Vogapol started a uh, powerlifting program in the in Orient in in the prison. Which, you know, you had to be a good citizen to be to stay in the program. Yeah. And guys, you know, they got hooked on it. They really wanted to do it. And so, hey, I can't stab anybody yeah, or break any rules, or I, they won't let me powerlift. Yeah. <laughs> so apparently powerlifting is every bit the debilitating addiction that weightlifting is. <laughs> <laughs> D- depends on who it's for, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, some people like weightlifting, some people like powerlifting, but if people get hooked on either one. They're just, they're hooked and they love it. So There's anyway. wrong with that? You know. So, uh, so you're West Side for about a year. Yeah, but they, I found out they were going to vote me out. Clearly, they were going to vote me out. And there's now, did no, they actually vote you out, or did you just no, take they, off? No, I just, I just stopped going because you know, yeah, I wasn't going to waste any more of their time, and I clearly did not fit in. It obviously wasn't working. Yeah, so I just stopped going. I got into amateur strongman stuff, and I went to Steve Schwartz's gym down in the north side of Columbus, and okay, started lifting there. Did you ever lift with uh, Slater? <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, and. uh who was the wrestler at Ohio State? He was a 
Yeah, uh, Slater Stones. He, yeah. he he trained there, Steve Schwartz, for a while. Yeah, a buddy of mine uh, grew up in high school training with uh, I think Steve Slater, and he was just an animal and through high school. I think I think he still got like some sort of powerlifting record as like a seventeen or eighteen year old kid. And then he went off to college, you know. And he he just that's how he that's who he grew up with lifting. He didn't know any better. He just trained with Steve Slater, you know, from Slater's Logs, and you know got to high school or college and i think he still holds the squat record for his wherever he played football i, I forget somewhere here in ohio squatted like an 800 pound you know with knee wraps you know below parallel you know and it's just his his son actually trains with uh, mark coaches him in the olympic lifts okay yeah and, and he's always at the arnold i always whenever i was back at the loading dock he'd always be bringing in all the strongman shit yeah because he's super involved with the arnold Oh yeah, he, he provides all that stuff for their their yeah. big, you know, strongman show. Yeah. So uh, let's see. It was uh, Mark Coleman. Okay. One of the original UFC guys. Yeah. Ohio State wrestler. He trained at he trained at Schwartz. Is he an Ohio gym. guy? Is he from around here? Yeah, he's from Ohio State. He was I, national champion for Ohio State. Oh, very cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, he had he had that. Yeah, he's actually a really nice guy, and nobody would ask to work in with him on any of the machines or any of the squat racks or anything because he had resting "I'll kill you" face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know his default look was, you know, psychopathic killer. Yeah, <laughs> which is good if you're a fighter for yes, a living. It's very good if you're. But a fighter. he's actually, you know, he's a nice guy. <laughs> which most of those guys are because they don't need to be tough because no. they know they're tough. No, <laughs> they don't have to act like they're tough. Yeah. But he never had to share any equipment because as soon as he sat down at it, people found other places to go. Like, I'll just lift over here. Yeah. <laughs> so did you do any uh, competitions, any shows or anything with a strongman? Or did you just train a little bit? No, just I got into, I, like I said, I like lifting heavy shit. And I, I really got into stones for a while. Like the when I was a kid in high school, the, the two you know, strength athletes who really impressed me were Vasily Alexiev. First guy to clean and jerk 500. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated for the 72 Olympics, 76 Olympics. Um, and then there was the Inverstone when uh, Bill Kazmaier was on the cover with the Inverstone over his head. Okay. The Inverstone is in Inverse Scotland where stone lifting in you know, the Nordic countries and Scotland is huge. Yeah, for, for people who don't know, they have stones scattered around the whole country. And usually you lift them up on top of a little wall. Uh-huh. And if you can put them on the wall, then you can go in the pub and have a pint. And it's kind of like a test of manhood. And they're yeah. scattered all over, and they're all different weights. Manhood stones. Exa- yeah. Exactly. And this this has been littered in their culture for hundreds and hundreds of years. Who knows really how long, you know. But it's, it's, it's a pretty interesting thing to really look into. So if you just – apparently, I've had friends go there, but apparently if you drive by the Inver Tavern, it's, you know, a, a barely paved road. And there's like – if you look for it in the weeds, you can see there's this rock across the street in the grass from the tavern. Mm-hmm. And it's inscribed. Uh, I forget what it says on it. I think it's in Gaelic. But it's 286 pounds. Um, and it's like almost, it's not perfectly round, but it's smooth. It's yeah. granite. And if you can break it from the ground, you drink free at the Inver, Inver Tavern. Oh, just break it. Yeah, just get it off the ground. Oh, wow. You drink free. Um, and all kind, you know, if you... If you get it off the ground, like stand up with it, hugging it to your chest, you know, there's pictures on the wall in there of you and all this shit. Well, Bill Kazmaier went there. He was, um, I think he was in his uh, Highland Games kill. kill. And cleaned it and pressed it overhead. (laughs) And somebody got a picture of it and they put it on 
it was it was the cover of Sports Illustrated. Nobody had ever even thought of yeah, doing that, it's, let it's alone an, done I mean, it. It's an amazing feat of strength. Yeah, and I saw that and like, rocks are cool. Yeah, <laughs> rocks are really cool, especially if you ever tried to pick one up. You realize these are heavy, <laughs> super heavy hard. and awkward. Yeah, it's not like a bar. Yeah, the center of mass of that thing you're trying to pick up is much farther away from you than a barbell yeah, which is. makes it seem so much heavier than it really is. 25 pounds doesn't seem that heavy until you hold it at arm's length in front of you and try to hold it there for a minute. Yeah. 25 pounds gets heavy in a hurry like that. <laughs> so if you're picking up 250 pounds of stone with the center of its gravity a foot in front of you, that shit's heavier than hell. Okay. But I really got into that for a while, and I started coaching a friend of mine that I framed houses with in strongman stuff. Um. His name was Chris Cook. He was like 6'5", 320 pounds. Big guy. Long black hair, big beard. People mistook him for a popular pro wrestler at the time, The Undertaker, oh, all God. the time. He, he got so tired of it, he just started signing people's autographs. The Undertaker? When they would run up and he'd sign <laughs> their autograph. <laughs> oh, God, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, but I, got him, we, I took him as a coach to a few strongman events. He went to a pro-am in Illinois, and there was an event with a – two-inch rope, um, a hawser uh, that they tie up ships at docks with. Uh-huh. And it was 100 feet of rope, and it was attached to a huge fire engine. And you sit down and brace your feet against a, a log that's staked in, and you pull this fire engine towards you on grass. It was hard grass, and it was flat, but it was in a park. None of the pro strongmen could get it moving. Chris grabbed the rope, sat down, ripped it towards him, and his lats were gigantic. And he pulled this thing all the way to him. <laughs> he beat all the pro strongman. His first strongman event. And he, went as, he went as an, an amateur. Yeah. Well, eventually Phil Fister invited him to go down and train with him in uh, West Virginia. Okay. Um, I think he went down there and trained with him a couple times. Very cool. Um, yeah, he was amazing athlete. Way, way stronger than me. He used to hang a 50-pound dumbbell from his waist. And I had this custom power rack made that had a um, five-inch square tube. And it was tall enough on the inside for a six-foot-five guy to do um, supports with, you know, like jerk supports. Yeah. Well, he would put his hands over the top. You couldn't grab it like a bar. You could only, like, bend your hands in an L over the top of it. Yeah, because it's five inches square. And with a 50-pound dumbbell hanging from his 320-pound body, he could pull his chin up over the bar for a good set of six. That's yeah. a really strong guy. That's a really strong guy. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you, you don't he, normally see guys that big doing a pull up, let alone oh, yeah, pull ups just, like that uh, when you don't have your hand wrapped on a bar. Yeah. He's got a picture he pulled he came up for a visit uh, a few like a couple months ago. He was up here for a training. He he started selling uh tools like Mac tools, I think. Um he was up here for training and he pulled out an old picture of uh first few dates he had with his wife. And he's standing here with his, you know, doing a single arm bicep, and his wife is sitting on his arm. <laughs> his, his fist is curled in front of her belly, and she's just sitting up on his arm. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a real, it was a good picture. Good to see him. But around that time, I started uh, getting into really into stones, and there was a park down the street near the Olentangy River called Tuttle Park, and it kind of been abandoned by. Columbus Park District. Okay. Um, so it's all overgrown and weeds, and I was wandering through there one day bird watching because I like that. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Um, and I saw these big rocks. 
I put down my binoculars and <laughs> over and tried to pick some up and I could get three or four of them. I finally figured out the smallest one was maybe 150. The middle one was 185 or 190 and the biggest one was about 230 pounds, I think. Um, but I couldn't get the 230 because it was, you know, kind of a muddy area and it was covered with moss and stuff and I couldn't get a grip and I was only a 250 bencher. So, yeah, I had to figure out how to get my arms all the way around it and lock my fingers. Okay. It took me a few months, but I started calling them the Tuttle Stones. <laughs> but I finally got down there and I got the 230 pound one up to my chest and stood up with it. Very cool. I was able to press the 185 or 190 pound one. And like press it over your head. Yeah, I actually have a picture of that at home. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So you just you're just going out for a walk in the park. You see these stones. You just pick them up and you're yeah, kind of, you're kind of just training. Yeah, and some friend of my girlfriend's at the time was a photographer. And said, "Can I take some pictures of you doing that?" I guess. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's not that amazing. But okay. I go down there. I pick up rocks. I get really filthy, and then I go home. <laughs> that's my Saturday morning. <laughs> But she did, and that's how I got those pictures. Well, that's really cool, though. Uh, now it is. Well, back, of course. Back then, people were like, the fuck you do that for? <laughs> well, I like to well, pick up heavy shit. Why not? Can you do it? <laughs> well, no. But why would I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, screw them if they can't take a joke. Yeah. Well, yeah, some people find that stuff fun. Some people don't. Exactly. I mean, I mean, some people like to sit on their ass and just stare off into space and do nothing, you know and Which that, is a perfectly valid use of your time. It's your time. <laughs> there's some times to do that if you're thinking through things, you know, but it's just, I'd rather be doing something, I guess, you know, so go listen to stones or go bird watching or just hang out. With or people, both. Or just <laughs> hang out with people you love or whatever. Who cares? Just do something. Have some fun. Yeah. You know, so, so what'd you get into after the strongman kind of stuff? How long did that kind of phase last for you? Uh, up until I discovered Olympic lifting again. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't thought about it enough or known enough to distinguish between picking up a big rock, picking up a barbell and putting it overhead like an Olympic lift, bench pressing or squatting. All the barbell sports and strength sports just sort of blended together for me. I didn't really – it never occurred to me to compete in them really. Well, yeah. <clears throat> until, you know, I was trying powerlifting. Um, so I saw Jim Schmidt's book. Jim Schmitz is a weightlifting coach from San Francisco area. Um, he coached a, a couple Olympians, uh, Ken Patera and uh, Mary Martinez, both supers. Um, supers being uh, the bigger weight back, classes. Back then, over 110 kilos. So anything over 110 kilos is is what's known as kind of a super heavyweight, right? Yeah, back then. The weight class is now a little over 105. Yeah, yeah, they're a little different. Um, Ken Patera ended up being a uh, pro wrestler, but he won a silver medal, I think, in 72. And I think Mario, Mario Martinez won silver in 84. Um, but anyway, I saw Jim Schmidt's book. It was a, you know, badly published, typo filled, bad pictures <laughs> with a comb binding, you know. So he put together himself. Yeah, well, at Kinko's. <laughs> <laughs> so I got that and I went through the thing, you know, how to learn to do the lifts. And I, Found called around to gyms in the area, and it turns out the Gold's Gym way on the east side of Columbus had two platforms. And if you talk to a couple of master lifters there, Richard Oder, Dr. Richard Oder, psychologist, ended up being in Columbus weightlifting for a long time. And now he's a referee at national meets. Okay. Uh, 
but he had a key to the closet where, you know, the good bars and the Illico plates were. And it would let us in there and we'd, you know, I would go through the snatch drills and, you know, the, the progression that Jim Schmitz had down from in the this book. book. From the book. Because okay. there's no coaches. Yeah. You know, I, I think Lou DeMarco was coaching then, never heard of him, didn't know where he was. I think uh, Terry Groh might have been coaching up in Cleveland. But there's, you know, maybe one to 2,000 competitive open class weightlifters in the whole country at the time. Yeah. And a tiny, tiny handful of coaches. It's not exactly a hugely popular sport. It's still not really a hugely popular sport, even though it has, has gained a lot of popularity in the last five or six years. Thank you, CrossFit. <laughs> Ch- trademark. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get sued. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to get sued. I, th- I think you're allowed to say thank you to a, a marketing company. I don't think they're going to sue you for that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Thanks, Glassman. <laughs> Fuck you, Castro. <laughs> Let us know how you really feel, Dan. <laughs> okay, so you started lifting there down in Columbus. Did you have any training partners or anything? Or? Yeah, I discovered that there were other people. There had been in a rec center on the north side of Columbus, just on High Street, there had been a weightlifting club. And it just sort of, you know, uh, who was Scott Bowman was in it. A um, uh, couple of guys who were firefighters. Yeah, I started running into the teeny tiny weightlifting community that was there and then uh, a friend of mine Kim Benez and I would we were talking about starting a gym and uh, you know like a personal training facility because we were going to make money at this yeah <laughs> we did not nope nope <laughs> he met his wife that way though so you know I, something good came out of something it something came out of it <laughs> you know um, and I had two platforms and you know I could snatch 70 kilos because I started to know what kilos were. <laughs> it's like pounds, but, you know, Smarter. European. Yeah. So much easier <laughs> to count kilos. Um, and, you know, I I had acquired a credit card because some crazy credit card company thought I was worth having a credit card. <laughs> and on that, I bought an Alico set, competition set, and a York competition set for each platform. And a couple of... Well, why different ones? Uh because I, I got an Alico for the first one. It was training plates with a competition bar. And then I figured out that for $1,000 less, I could get York. <laughs> okay, so you just went with the York just to get something. And those that that York bar and those York plates are still in the gym. Okay. It was like 1999 that I got this shit. You know, um, the Alico bar was bent. Um, I think Mark Canella still has some of the Alico plates. I just took the York shit because American. Because <laughs> <laughs> America. <laughs> And those plates, I mean, they made great stuff back then. Yeah. I mean, you know, China or Canada makes it their stuff now. I don't know. But those those 25, 20, and 15 kilo plates have lasted forever. They've been in steady use in a, a weightlifting, a training weightlifting gym since 1999. And we're still using them. <laughs> it's kind of hard to argue with that. Yeah. <laughs> Especially for $1,000 less than a Leco. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, you know. I made myself head coach of Columbus weightlifting. And, <laughs> and it was you and how many people? Like five. <laughs> <laughs> There's six, all of whom knew more than me. Yeah. So why, <laughs> so why were you the head coach then? Just because no one Because I bought the shit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out they didn't really know that much of what they were doing. They didn't know how they did it exactly. There's some basic tips. You know, this is a hook grip. Try to keep it close. 
you know. Um, and then one day I'm sitting there, and three or four, it's Saturday morning, three or four of the guys are training, and somebody had called to find out, if, you know, I heard there was a weightlifting gym in town. It was Mark Canella who had started with Fraser Ferguson weightlifting 10 years earlier, I think, Okay. in Columbus. Frazier was an old-timey um, physical culture guy. So he, you know, he knew something about weightlifting, but he was a generalist um, to the point of like handstands and acrobatics and things like that. So Mark wanted to learn more and better. So he went out to John Thrush's gym, Calpians, in Tacoma, Washington. Okay. Moved out there. This is, when I talk about the mental aspect, what it takes to be good at this, Mark structured his relationships, his job, his life goals, all around being better at this. If you want to, if you want to have a chance to get to the top, and that's all he had was a chance. That's the shit you do. Yeah. It ain't normal. It probably ain't healthy. Probably not. But it's what has to be done. Yeah. And when people tell me I can't do that, yes, you can. You're choosing not to. You have other priorities. It's okay if you're honest with yourself and me and say I have other priorities. But I know people who have done it this way. <laughs> A lot of people have done it this way. Yeah. And they may not have won everything or gone to the Olympics, but they went as far as their talent will take them. If you have talent and stop short of that, it's either not your sport or you're okay with shortchanging yourself. Yeah. But anyway, um, and he was with John Thrush, who had two or three Olympians, many national champions. Um, and then from there, he didn't he didn't think his snatch was – his clean and jerk was coming along great, but he didn't think his snatch was coming along the way it should. And so he moved from there down to train with Bob Ticano at uh, Fat Elvis in Los Angeles for several years. Okay. Where he met J.P. Nicoletta and Sean Waxman. People – everybody knows who Waxman's gym is now. But when he finally saw himself not progressing anymore, getting older – injuries he decided time to move on with my life came home to columbus but wanted to keep lifting and maybe start coaching found us so i'm sitting there one saturday morning in my little stupid storefront next to the t-shirt shop that hated us and the <laughs> hydroponic store that had you know old ladies who wanted to grow vegetables in their garage coming in a lot of them drove micro buses <laughs> with tie-dye t-shirts <laughs> but you know and we're training and here comes this Short, balding dude with a little bitty pot belly. Uh, if you stuck a if you stuck a short sleeve dress shirt on him and a tie, you'd swear he was assistant manager at a bank branch, you know. And it's okay if I train. Oh, yeah. There's an open platform. Jump on up there. I watched him start warming up. Snatch seventy. Snatch ninety. Snatch one ten. Snatch one twenty five. Clean and jerk one sixty. You know. And when he was done, I said, my name's Dan, and you're the new head coach of Columbus Weightlifting. <laughs> <laughs> Teach me this shit. <laughs> That's how you met Mark. Yep. <laughs> Interesting. Well, it's pretty obvious he knew way more than I did. Well, what were your lifts at the time? I, I think I snatched 70 or 80, and I clean and jerked like, I don't know, 90. Okay. As a 250-pound guy with a 500 squat. <laughs> So not even close to your strength potential. No. By clearly, any means. Clearly there's shit I didn't know. And I was like, um, I think I was 40, 39 or 40. Okay. At the time. How long have you been in Columbus weightlifting then? 
Uh, was it Columbus Weightlifting? But by that point, before Mark came. Oh, we had uh, we'd been around for a few months. Well, that's it. So it was yeah. pretty much brand new. Pretty much and brand new. Mark just happened to come in when it was kind of forming. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So then, so did Mark agree to come back and like start helping? You oh guys yeah. Or? Okay. It was a, a, there wasn't a lot of choice in Columbus. It was the only place with bumper plates, Olympic bars, who knew what Olympic weightlifting yeah, was. Yeah, but he also could have done what city. you did. Is you know go out and buy his own shit and just start doing his own thing. Except that everything he owned fit in a uh, a Honda Civic. Well, yeah, because which at the time was about the size dri- of a skateboard. Well, yeah, but you got to <laughs> drive to the coach, you know, and that's kind of how that works. Is you give up everything else to yeah to focus on your training. Yeah, um, he uh, yeah was gonna he went back to school at Franklin University. Um, he used to get a degree in logistics. So while he was doing that, he was doing this at night. Very cool. And so how long did you guys train down there together? Uh, it wasn't long before I wasn't training at all because I found myself coaching and trying to lift, coaching and trying to lift before you know it, I wasn't lifting for a workout. I was coaching the whole time. And then before you know it, I wasn't lifting at all. Yeah. Um, I think when I left Columbus weightlifting, it was like 99 to 2005. I think it was 2005. I left Columbus weightlifting one. My father had, gotten pretty ill and it was my mom my brother lived nearby my sister lived nearby but i felt like i needed to do my share to help out um and there were two coaches there you know two coaches that knew what they were doing well one that really knew what he was doing and one that thought he knew what he was doing and still trying to figure it out so you know i thought you know we really should be coaching two separate clubs which i you know i got got up to the the farm and I tried to start a club three or four places and I couldn't find space and didn't have enough equipment. Okay. So it was a two or three year break there where I didn't coach anybody. Well, my brother in his basement. Well, yeah, but, and, and a couple of the kid, the kids on the hay crew who lived up the street, but nothing of any substance where kids are coming in with a lot of talent and promise and you're working with them, trying to you know, no. get them to a national or international level, which is your goal in a club, obviously. No. So so when did how did Holly come into this whole mix? Oh, well um I had I had some stuff, you know, uh, like I said training my brother's basement sometimes. Um I was still lifting myself to try to stay in shape and keep some strength. Um but I was mostly living on a friend's farm, living in an upstairs room for room and board, 50 bucks a week. Um writing a novel and uh, trying to get my life together. <laughs> this is your early 40s, right? Uh, I'm probably, at that point, late 40s. Okay, late 40s? Early 40s, starting Columbus weightlifting. Okay. Late 40s. Um, so I had um, a bunch of tools in my arms and a bucket. I was walking from the house to the tractor shed that's on the other side of the driveway to change the oil on the tractor. And uh, I get around the corner of the house and they're sitting in the driveway is this, you know, Mustang and these two enormous human beings (laughs) just filling the windshield. (laughs) It's like just nothing but human. Like there's no space (laughs) anywhere (laughs) because her dad's pretty big too. Um, And her dad rolls down the window and says, is this Dan Bell weightlifting? Like standing with an armload of tools with grease dripping down the front of me, like, well, I got, I got a 
borrowing some bites in the barn up the hill. <laughs> I guess. I said, well, this is a registered club with uh, USA Weightlifting, right? Because I'd forgotten, you know, I registered a couple of different clubs, never re- anticipating getting space, never really got it. Yeah. So I had screwed down a couple of pieces of plywood in the barn, and that's where I, I had three hay bales stacked up on either side were my squat racks. <laughs> this was kind of dusty. <laughs> Whatever works. Yeah. Um, I said, yeah, well, because well, Holly had started training a little bit with like two or three months with, I think, a few months with Chris Cleary down in uh, Cincinnati and just popped into junior nationals after two months training and won. <laughs> That's a good day. Now, the competition would quickly get much stiffer. Sarah Robles was just starting to, and a couple other women were you know, we had a couple other supers. Cheryl Hayworth was still in it, but she just right at the end of her career and, you know, she was getting injured and she, but she wasn't a junior anymore. Um, but yeah, she just after two or three months because she would, she had been powerlifting with, uh, oh, what is his name? He was a really good powerlifter back in the eighties. His name will probably come to me or it might be lost in the ether in, somewhere. Yeah. That's all right. Uh, but he got her squat. She did a, like a as a seventeen year old. She squatted six hundred pounds Holy in a power in a powerlifting meet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I didn't have to worry about getting her her legs strong. Nope. Um, but she even even she as freakishly talented as she was, upper back strength was lacking because yep. you don't do a lot of things that are specifically for that, and you have to have that for weightlifting. Um. But she got a throwing scholarship at Ursuline College up in Cleveland, and she was looking for a place to train. So the first year, I trained her in the weight room. I drove out to Ursuline College in the east side of Cleveland, trained her in their weight room, which was in the second floor, right above the head basketball coach's office. So you're not allowed to drop weights. And by the way, no chalk. Because, you know, we don't want to pay somebody to clean all the time. Which may have been a blessing in disguise. We could never go heavier than 40 or 45 kilos in the snatch and maybe 65 or 70 in the clean and jerk so she could quietly put it down. But we constantly drilled skill stuff. Okay. Const- constantly drilling at light weights, learning how to do the lifts. So she had nine months of that before summer break. Um, so when she finally, you know, Got out for summer break, you know, when the lion was uncaged. <laughs> um, we started training in my brother's garage. I put together a platform in my brother's garage. It was warm enough. Um, she drove out and she lived on the farm for a summer. There's extra room. So she lived at the farm and we'd drive to my brother's garage and train six days a week. And, you know, I'd sit on the couch and coach my one lifter. <laughs> <laughs> And it was fun. It was fun. Um, apparently, you know, that's when I started, I found out that she had been a, like a big deal in high school because she was a offensive lineman for, um, Archbishop Kettering altar down at Centerville, I think it is or okay. in Dayton area where she's yeah. from. Um, not, she wasn't a girl playing football who was a kicker. She wasn't the third string defensive back. She was essentially the starting guard on a team that went to the state championship game. Um, and the reason she wasn't a starting guard is her offensive line coach was an old-fashioned sexist asshole who refused to start a woman. So her backup 
played the first series and then she played the rest of the game. Really? Yeah. That's shitty. Yeah. <laughs> if she's good enough to play, she's good enough to start. Come on. She was good enough to make all state. That's, I mean, <laughs> if yeah. if you want her in there, like let her be in there. Don't, yeah. don't do stupid shit like that. She's got lots of video where the uh, she said the guy in front of her was, you know, insulted and giving her tons of shit about having to play a girl and going to kick her ass for daring to do this. Then she would flatten him and take out the linebacker too. They would march in for an easy touchdown. And, you know, his attitude came right around. <laughs> Fuck, I'm going to have to play. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So anyway. Uh, so, so she was living with you on the farm and you guys would drive to your brothers for training. How long were you guys like training together? Uh, well, three months there, and then it got, well, few, maybe more, I think we trained into November before. My brother's garage is heated, you know, and we trained there as long as we could. But, you know, when you got to put a third layer of clothes on and you got to, you know, take a propane torch to warm up the bar first yeah. <laughs> so your hand doesn't stick to it, it's time to find a heated gym. Probably, yeah. So we found a gym, King's Gym, on the southeast side of Cleveland. It was not too far from Ursuline. And they agreed to let me put my platform in there and bring my weights down there. And they gave her a bargain, like a student bargain. All we had to do is, you know, make sure we mentioned that that's where she was training. Okay. And then MTV came and wanted to do, because they did as a girl who actually really played football in high school and was successful at it. Um, ES, ESPN had done a thing on her. It was like a half hour special. Okay. Um, then the woman who was, I think it's Karen Yakovich. I forget her last name. I'm Facebook friends with her. <laughs> uh, she was her producer and like a, her agent. And she got a True Life with her, with MTV. They did those True Life series. Uh-huh. So it was like an hour on it. So we had a bunch of reality TV cameras following us around at the gym for a few months. Um, but leading up to the Pan American, she had made... She'd won the American Open in 2009. As a junior or like as a senior? She was still a junior. Still a junior. Still a junior. I think she won it with like 95 and 125. Okay. Um, so she made the junior world team in Hungary. She went and lifted the junior world team. She made the Pan Am team. Um, it was in Guatemala. And that's leading up to Guatemala is when they were filming all the training. Okay. And when I got, I couldn't afford to go. You know, and, and as far as USA Weightlifting knew, I'm who the fuck am I? Um, they had real coaches to go. So um, I took her to the airport when she was leaving to meet everybody. And I, I forget where they're flying out of Houston to go to Guatemala. Okay. And we had the cameras in the back seat. And she got out, dropped her off at the airport, 4.30 in the morning, shook her hand slapped her on the back and said, go get him. Got back in the car. And when this thing finally aired, I got no end of shit from friends. Why didn't you hug her? I, like, I don't hug my athletes. Yeah. I barely, I'm still learning how to hug my mom. <laughs> <laughs> it's not comfortable. Well, it's, it's one of those things also, is you kind of have to have that little bit of a layer of professionalism in there. You can't just run around hugging all your athletes. No. You know, so you, you don't want to. It's, it's more of the, hey, you know, keep focused, keep your head down. Let's do the work. We've been training for this. You're ready. Go get them. You know, yeah. they, they need much more of that than they need a, a big hug. They get hugged from their freaking parents or their spouse yeah. or whatever. Like, exactly. That's not what you're there for. Yeah. 
It always feels weird when an athlete – it's always female athletes who want to hug me. Well, like, yeah, the guys aren't going to hug you. No, and thank you. <laughs> 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 but I feel weird hugging female athletes because it seems sexist. <laughs> well, it, it is and it isn't, right? I mean, because it's, it's all about the intention, you know, so it's it's really no big deal. But So so you, you drop her – did you drive her all the way to Houston or you just drop her off in Cleveland? They no, flew, Cleveland. Flew, flew to Houston. They Cleveland, linked up with them and then they flew down. Yeah. Turned out, you know – she got there they, right after they had an earthquake. Um, volcano blew, covered the city in volcanic ash. Oh, dear God. She went against all my advice, several of the lifters there. I said, you know, only bottled water. Make sure the lid hasn't been taken off so the bottle was refilled. You know, make sure that the the team manager and the coaches that are with you approve whatever f- wherever you eat food. Well, they all went to McDonald's because McDonald's the same everywhere. It's perfectly safe. They all got sick as dogs. Yep. She lost a ton of weight. Her total went down from like 220, 225, down to like 185 pounds or kilos. And she's had a shitty time. The volcano goes off, you know, shuts down the city with volcanic ash. So airplanes can't fly. They have to get to an airport that they can fly home from, which the only, the only one that's open that's close is in El Salvador, San Salvador Airport. So they got to take a bus there, but they can't take a bus through the countryside because there's so many lawless types that will stop the bus, yeah. rob them. Oh, yeah. So they have to hire personal guards that they think are taking them all the way to San Salvador. But at the Guatemala border, they say, okay, our job's done. <laughs> it's like, peace out. <laughs> they're like, it's only 70 miles from here. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> so that was... Not her best overseas trip. No, nope, probably not. <laughs> uh, I only had to hear the stories about it. I, I'm glad I didn't go. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a coach, I'm sure you wanted to be there for your athletes. So I know, I know there's some mixed emotions there, of course. But Well, and also, you know, that's the first athlete I've produced at that level. Yeah. And I didn't really feel like I belonged as a coach. And, you know, was, was that none just, of the coaches at that level will let you feel like you well getting there either. Yeah, but fuck those guys because they're operating on the scarcity mentality of if if Dan's here, if you're here, then I'm less of a coach. It's like, no, it's all of us together are better. So let's help uplift other people as well. You know, there's there's so much more of that. I mean, but did you not feel like you deserved to be there just because you didn't have like a big club or a lot of athletes or you were newer at this? I had I had because, no club and I had one athlete. <laughs> because you've kind of been doing this stuff for about thirty years at this point. You're well, obvi- yeah, you're obviously pretty damn good at it. Well, I you know, and uh, if I had a chance to do it again, I'd do it better. Yes, of course, that's kind of the idea of learning as you go, which is what you're trying to impart on you know the athletes that you have now. It's all the mistakes that you've already made. But, I mean, what, what, but why didn't you feel like you deserved to be there to help coach her? I mean, you you got her there. Well, you know, yeah, a monkey with a whistle could have coached Holly Mangold to the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> she came to me with a six hundred pound back squat. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll take some credit for teaching her halfway decent technique at the beginning. Yeah, but you know. You remember the jockey's name who rode secretariat? No. Because <laughs> anybody could have rode fucking secretariat to the triple crown. <laughs> okay, fair enough. You know, I am a, I'll take credit as a coach more for an average athlete who gets above average results 
than a great athlete who gets where they're supposed to go. Okay. Okay. I can understand that. You know, it, Bob Takano calls them genius makers. You know, he, I forget, uh, was, uh, what was his name? He had an Olympian in the 80, 84 Olympics, finished fourth. Um, I can't remember his name. Little guy, uh, 56 or... Uh, Chad Vaughn? No, 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 no. This is back in 1984. Oh. Chad, Chad Vaughn is... He was he just wasn't he? No, no, no. Chad, Chad Vaughn went... Uh, I think Chad went to... Beijing, maybe London. Okay. Or Greece and Beijing. I forget. Yeah. Chad's more, much more recent. Okay. Um, but anyway, you know, this guy finished fourth at the Olympics. And, you know, Bob said, you know, I was the same coach the day before he walked in as I was when he almost won an Olympic medal. But suddenly everybody thought I knew shit. I mean, I did. But nobody cared or thought that before I got this freak athlete who I taught the same thing I teach everybody, but he's a freak. Yeah. <laughs> so he went farther. Yeah. So uh, you feel more responsible when you get a, a a really physically gifted athlete. Like, you know, don't blow this. <laughs> you feel like it. You have to do better with them because, you know, they have higher potential. And if they don't get there, you feel responsible. We are only part of the equation, obviously. I mean, you, you can help guide them along the way. You know, but you can't get them there. They have to get themselves there. Well, it's true. But, you know, every, every big time, like college football coach, every – Every big coach has more or less has this, the same approach when you're successful. You know, when they win, it's the players. When they lose, it's me. That's, you know. Yeah. No, that's that's just, that's your coach. That's just the way it is. That's kind of how that works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when, when when they win, they get all the glories. When when you lose, it's, it's all up to you. And that's yep. fine because. That's your job. If you don't take that kind of responsibility, then the kids will never win. Yeah. It's just, that's just kind of how it works. You know, so so they shot this special. So she got back from Pan Am's. What what happened after Pan Am's? Uh, she got invited to the the National Training Center. Okay, uh, out in Utah. Yeah, in Colorado Springs, she got invited to the OTC. Um, because we, you know we had space there, just dedicated to weightlifting. We had office space. That's where USAW um, national offices were. We had a national coach and. Athletes who got to stay, I mean, they were resident athletes. That was their full-time job. They were paid. They got a stipend. They got room and board. They got all the benefits of, you know, recovery modalities, um, medical stuff, all right there. And they trained virtually every day. I think they trained nine times a week then. And she she got invited to be a resident athlete. And I thought, okay, did my job. I got her to this level. She's there. Now she can just take off. Um, but Zygmunt Smallsearch was the new coach and we've, we've made this mistake a few times and I hope we quit making this mistake that thinking that because they've been more successful without digging into the details of their success or thinking about it too hard, that Europeans know more than Eastern Europeans know more than we do. The Russians, the Romanians, the Hungarians, you know, the Poles, they all, 
know more than us because they're way more successful. They know more than us about using drugs. They know more than us about training people on drugs. You know, when we get a European coach over here who spent his entire career being an athlete on drugs and then training athletes on drugs, they have no fucking idea what undrugged athletes can do and how much of it they can do. When he first got over here, he he literally ended Rachel Crass's career, just destroyed her low back with the volume of training that he tried to put on these athletes at first. And he injured a few people and drove a few people out and shortened careers until he fairly quickly figured out how hey, to tra- we kind of can't do this. Yeah, we can't do this. <laughs> so I, you know, I, you know, and Zygmunt's like, he's a nice guy. He knows what he's doing. He did his best. But, you know, we didn't need him. And he didn't know as much as a dozen different guys here. You know, Don McCauley applied for that job. But Don knows he was never going to get that job, which is unfortunate because he's one of the top, you know, top coaches in the country. He he knows his shit. He's a great technical coach, but he's made sure that half the coaches and lifters in the country hate his guts. You know, Don is an acquired taste. <laughs> Don's awesome, and I love Don. I, I love Don about. too, because Don will never lie to you. No, he you may not like what he's saying, but you know it's not bullshit. Sometimes the truth hurts. <laughs> you know. Uh, and nobody, there's no coach that makes me laugh more than Don. Oh God, Don's such a great guy. Yeah, but you know, but politically, he yeah, just, that's suicide. You, you can't speak your mind in politics because they're just yeah. ruin you. Yeah, it's yeah, you know, uh, that's why it was never my goal to be coach of an international team or anything like that. First of all, I don't want to be responsible for coaching other people's athletes that I don't know. That is a skill set in itself. Yeah, and we have people who know how to do that, who've done that many times. And then we have people who want who that's their goal. You know, if I have an athlete who makes a team, I want to be a personal coach and be, you know, credentialed to yeah, go with be them. there for them. Yeah. But I don't want to I don't like especially a junior team, you know, where it's like herding cats. Only it's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> maybe not that organized. <coughs> no. <laughs> you know, they get they get drunk and don't come home at night and come home with, you know, tattoos from some third world tattoo parlor <laughs> i don't want to be the guy that's responsible for that happening fair enough <laughs> and shit like that happened <laughs> so well she gets to the training center and they give her these outlandish numbers that she has to hit to earn her spot to stay there and there are so other just coming in uh, just coming in you know wow like her, I think going in, her PR snatch was a hundred. Um, and they wanted her to open at the American Open, and she was going to be there from end of August to the American Open. She had to she had to move her snatch up to the point where she was opening at one o two. Now, wh- how much time is that? When does the American Open? American Open's first weekend of December, so she had so just a couple of September, months. October, November, three and a half months. To, to move her PR snatch up to the point where she's opening heavier than her PR snatch. Yeah, which is just not going to happen in that short amount of time. And they put an, an immense amount of pressure on her. You know, hit this total or you're out. It's like you you busted your ass. You did everything you're supposed to do to attain this. And then we put, you know, somebody thought it was a brilliant idea to put all this pressure on athletes who haven't really learned how. She's still learning the fucking sport. Yeah. She's barely been in it. 
and they put all this pressure on her. Um, and she bombed at the American Open in 2010. Yeah, and out. She was, I don't know, you know, one bad hair day from quitting the sport completely. I could completely understand that. Um, I talked to her afterwards. She didn't have any place to go. I well, said, yeah, because that was her whole goal, to get to the OTC, to train with them, to try to go yeah, to the Olympics. Because that's is, where the best coaches are. Yeah, and they freaking give her three months to do some ridiculous amount of volume, which is not going to happen. You yeah. Know, and then you get her get her snatch up to comfortably be snatching a PR to open it with. Like, no, like that doesn't happen in a few months. Yeah, so, well, I talked to my friend Mark, Columbus Weightlifting. Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't down there anymore, but – he was one of a small handful of coaches I really trusted and who knew what the fuck they were doing. And I convinced her, you know, come down here, move to Columbus, train with Mark. Just train with Columbus weightlifting. No, why didn't she want to come train with you? I didn't have any place for her to train. Okay. But Once still, again, you were know. still at the farm? Still at the farm. We could go back to my brother's garage again. But, but she, it's not heated, so there's problems there. And- yeah, and we have to overcome all those problems, you know. Um Living at the farm for a summer is okay, but you know, I, I'd be asking her to move. You know, the people I lived with. Hey, is it okay if this other person moves in permanently? Yeah, which is a tough thing to do. A tough thing to do. Uh, but Mark has other good lifters, lots of good lifters training. Um, yeah, he's a good lifter himself. He's a heck of a good coach. Good lifter himself. Good coach. Liked what he taught. I thought she could be successful there, and I'm a two and a half hour drive away. So at first I was, I wrote her program and Mark implemented it. Um, but he slowly took over the programming and everything, which he should, because he's there, the coach with her with yeah. eyes on her every day. Exactly. Um, and he became her, you know, her coach. And for the next year and a half, you know, I'd go down and, and help out watch, you know, um, I'd look at video for technique and, you know, pass ideas on to Mark where she could clean up things like that. But Mark had plenty of, you know, his own ideas. He's like, He's like, like I said, he's a good coach. I trust him. And, you know, she came in ranked third or fourth, I think, to the trials, which happened to be at the Arnold in Columbus. Okay. So the Olympic trials. The Olympic trials in 2012, um, uh, beginning of March, which is a little bit early for them. People complained it was too early, but other people complained we always have them too late and there's not enough training cycle to peak for the Olympics. So, you know. Yeah. yeah. People are always going to bitch. Yeah. Um, so you come to the Olympic trials and, you know, I'll say this about Holly. She didn't like training and she doesn't hit PRs. She didn't hit PRs that often in training. She's a gamer. Yeah. If you tell her shit's on the line, that's when she's at her best. Okay. You know, you, you, there are people that there's, a, there are lifters, you know, I don't know if I can hit the, you know, take this lift. You know, I've never hit this in training. It's, you know, they're afraid to hit their PRs at a meet. They're afraid to do shit they've never done before, no matter how well prepared they are. Uh, Holly gave zero fucks. <laughs> this is 10 kilos more than your PR. Fucking load it. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Gotta have it. <laughs> so, uh, snatched a little bit under her PR. She, I think she hit 110. Um, but she'd never hit more than 140. I don't think she jerked 140. She may have jerked 140 in training. But she needed 145 to really seal the deal. Went out, cleaned it no problem, and just smoked the jerk. Yeah. For 255 total. Moved up into second. Then had to wait while uh, 
um, oh, what's her name? It's a lifter from California, Choma Michi. When, when Choma came out and she did, she went for an 11 kilo PR clean and jerk to try to make the team. Bad snatcher. The Holly had her by like 10 kilos in the snatch. Okay. No, six kilos. But I forget, she needed like a 151 clean and jerk to make it. And I think she deadlifted it. But that was one of my more treasured moments, being in the back room with Holly when she became an Olympian. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, that was nice. So she, she did well at the trials. Yeah. And then when when were the Olympics then? So did she have to go back out to the OTC to train with the team, or she trained there with Mark? I think she trained with Mark. Okay. I don't think she – well, no. She went to the OTC because she was – in a mock meet at the OTC is when she hit her very best lifts. She hit 118 and 147, I think, at that mock meet. Okay. She had cleaned 150 at the state meet, but uh, missed the jerk. Um, but she was on the rise. And uh, then at the, I think it was, I can't remember if she was at home training with Mark or if she was at the OTC, but she was... I think taking a double in a 130 clean and caught her elbow on her knee and blew up her wrist two weeks out, week and a half out. Okay. It was pretty fucking close. It was too close for the uh, the backup for the reserve athlete to get ready. And the doctors at the OTC said, you can't do any more damage to it. If you can take the pain, you can lift. And she's a gamer, so let's she's go. She's a gamer, so she went. Uh, they were wrong. She had a 140 clean and jerk at the Olympics that completely destroyed her wrist. Now, what Olympics is this? London. So, what, 12? Yeah. Just tore more ligaments, broke more bones. She's got huge scars on the both sides. From of all the surgery now? Yeah. I don't think she's snatched more than 105 cents. But still, she's in a very exclusive club. Yeah. She made it to the Olympics. She made it to the Olympics. When everyone pretty much said, fuck you, you're not good enough, and she showed them. Uh, you know what? I can't tell you how many people I, I commented on message boards, commented to me, commented to Holly to her face that she shouldn't be on the Olympic team because she's so fat she gives Olympic lifting a bad name. Nobody ever said that about Shane Hammond. Who was no, huge. Yeah. I remember people saying that about Sarah Robles. You know, dudes, you know, dude puts 500 uh, pounds over his head. He's amazing. You know. He's as fat or fatter than Holly, but you know that there's his appearance is not the measure of whether he belongs at the Olympics. It's yeah. how much weight's over his fucking head. Yeah, you know if somebody skinnier and prettier wanted to be at the Olympics, all they had to do was that beat her. her. Yeah, yeah, just beat her. Imagine that. That's all you have to do. But guess what? Nobody yeah. did. And guess who got to go? It's a very objective sport. <laughs> this lift goes or it doesn't. <laughs> so you were you were there in London with her, right? Yeah. Um, I wasn't in the back room. Mark was in the back room, and I think uh, Kyle Pierce was in the back room. Okay, but I got to watch, <laughs> yeah, which is which is super cool being there for you know your athletes. So yeah, um, so I was supposed to take my wife with me, but uh, didn't have enough money, and it turns out the room I could get, which was like six hundred bucks for six nights. <laughs> <laughs> Because anybody who had any floor space in London was cleaning up with coaches, athletes, and spectators who want someplace to sleep. Yeah. Had a single bed, 
fold out from a couch. <laughs> That's something. So That's all you need. Yeah. So that, that was kind of the end of kind of your guys' relationship together because she kind of stopped lifting after that, didn't she? Yeah, she needed a break. It was yeah. I mean, psychologically you guys, you guys have obviously roommate friends and close oh, yeah. and you guys talk, but yeah. But so so she kind of went the wayside. And that was kind of your only athlete at the time because you were still doing your own thing at the farm and no big deal. And then yeah. how long was it after that that Mike had reached out to you and you guys started working together with Colin and Phil at Rubber City? Oh, after after Holly, it was – it was right at at the at the end of uh, like when she went to the OTC. Okay, right around 2010, um, I finally decided to date again after a five year break, and got on Match. dot com, you know. which, which is always a good place to go when you're looking for a date. Right, you just go online. Uh, <laughs> who meets people out in the real life anymore? Yeah, but I'm like in my fifties. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. Well, of course, you're also looking for a different thing than a lot of kids are today, unfortunately, on these yeah. online dating sites. So after about three weeks online, I, you know, the great thing about sites like that is, yeah, you know, if you, if you read between the lines or in most cases, if you read that this person can't write at all and it acts like English is a second language, <laughs> I can just, you know, uh, what is it? Tinder where you swipe left you swipe, or swipe? Yeah, yeah. You swipe right I just delete, yes, delete, sw- delete, 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 delete. <laughs> swipe left for now. <laughs> um, but I, I met my wife, Melissa, on there. Um, after about three weeks, we went out on one date. And this is in 2010? Yeah. Okay. Um, to actually, right at the end of 2009. Uh, I think I, I think our first date was after I got home from that Americans where Holly bombed. Okay. So it was during this whole time that you, you had met Melissa? Yeah. Okay. Um and after a few months, you know, since we had both, you know, been around enough to know what we didn't want. Yeah. In contrast, turns out we knew what we did want. So, like, by end of February, we were getting married. Okay. And I moved down to um, the Canton area. And that's when Mike hunted me down. Okay. So, it was still during this whole time with Holly as well, too. Yes. Okay. I thought I thought they were different times. I didn't realize they were in the same time. Okay. They kind of overlapped a little bit. Okay. A little bit towards the end there. Yeah. Leading up to the Olympics. Yeah. So. Okay. So so you you started Rubber City. So there's a whole bunch going on for you in your life right now. <laughs> after crazy stuff going on, and you're kind of at the farm, kind of chilling out, trying to figure out where you want to go in life, and you get married, and you got Holly, and you get trained for the Olympics, and you started a new club, and. You know, it, I like to stay busy. Yeah, apparently, because <laughs> that's a whole lot going on all at the same time. I guess I never really thought of that. Well, it's it's kind of funny when you look back, you kind of see things differently than where they were when, obviously, when you're going through them. Yeah. Because during the time, you're just like, oh, I'm just busy. We're just doing this. We're doing that. It's no big deal. And you, just, you kind of make it happen. Yeah. You know, so, so how long, so when you started working with the, the new club, Rubber City Weightlifting, which is the club you're at now. And how long were you guys working together with Phil and Mike and Colin before you guys started like really grow the club and kind of, cause I knew you guys had a couple of moves in there where you were kind of moving around cause you kind of outgrew space and well, let's see. Uh, um, we were at, um, Oh, it's the bodybuilding gym, bodybuilders gym <laughs> 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 on, on Talmadge. Um, 
Mike started going out with Cat, Cat Lee, pole vaulter at uh, Akron. Um, and I was trying to figure out, you know, some way that she could train too, because she couldn't afford to go there. I, I started teaching a class, I think, at CrossFit Utility, and okay. I was teaching a class to CrossFitters. And they gave me, uh, Doug Price there, good guy, gave me a key that I could come and go as I please. Okay. If, you, if you have a couple of lifters you want to train, just come in in the afternoon when there's no classes and train them. So I started working with, uh, by that time, Phil, um, I think, camera. Phil would come in sometimes. Colin uh, Haven would come in and train with me, and Kat would come in and train in the afternoons. She was transitioning from college track to, you know, post-college athlete. Yeah. So we were working there, and eventually um, Doug got this space across the alley, which additional, I don't know, 3,000 or 2,000 square feet. So yeah. we put the club over there. We established a club for months over across the alley from yep. Utility. Um, and the club just, you know, people kept coming in the door and more and more people, cat, cat kept getting better, uh, had to, we eventually lost that space because the guy didn't want to rent the offices in the front and the warehouse space in the back separately. Yeah. You don't want to separate the building, but he wasn't give the renter the option to take the whole space and they did. Yeah. Which is, which is understandable. Yeah. So we had to move out. So we moved back into utility. Okay. Then he wanted to separate that. And so well, I think there's still people there. They call it behind the curtain yeah. lifting or something yeah. like there's, that. Yeah, there's still weightlifters that train there. Yeah, but I decided, you know, I'm tired of being dependent on, you know, even though they're good people, this CrossFit or that CrossFit. So I wanted my own space. So rolled the dice. We were get by the time I had enough lifters paying enough dues that I, I could actually pay for a space. Yeah. So Was, wasn't there another CrossFit gym in there before we got our own space? Akron. We were in. When CrossFit you, Akron. When were you in CrossFit Akron? Few months before, or after Doug. Before, right? It was after and before. It was. Uh, that's right. Um, it was a CrossFit utility. This guy, Josh, came and I'm starting CrossFit Akron. I want you know real weightlifting coach. He turns out to be just a flat con artist, but um, was in there and it was a farther drive. Um, only had two platforms okay. stuck off in the so, corner. So you went there. It didn't really work out. So you went back to the didn't utility. Really work, it didn't work out to the point where I was loading all my equipment in the rain into the back of my pickup and driving around with no place to go in the rain. That's where you know it's desperate. When so, I call, I so, called, so you should go back to Doug. Called we, Doug Price. We got, the own little, yeah. we got our own little space there the, yeah. beside Were Doug. Were you there then? Yes. So that, that's why I first came okay. to the club because we had our own little space. After CrossFit Akron. Yeah, I was I wasn't, I wasn't around for all all that. So so after we had the little space, so the landlord decided to rent out the whole building. So we got kind of moved out of our space. So we so you decided to get your own space. So we went up into Akron and had a little place on Holm Avenue. So we were up there for what three years? Three years. Okay, and we we just moved out of there, and now we're at uh, North Canton again. So we're back down towards you. So it's closer to home, which is obviously good. Unrivaled strength. And we're in it. Unrivaled, unrivaled strength and fitness, I believe, is what the business is Oh, yeah, is and called. fitness. Yeah, whatever it's called. Strength yes. and, you know, fitness. Yeah, you know, it, it's some healthy, <laughs> you know, crossfit Oh, excuse me, functional fitness kind no, of No, there's no functional fitness there. Yeah. <laughs> <There's laughs> I can't call exactly it Exactly zero physio balls there. Well, yeah, but I, just, I can't call it that because, you know, it's a marketing firm and they'll sue us, you know. But they're, but they're also really good at that and they have, you know, things on ESPN so people get excited. 
Yeah. But so so now we're there. Things are exciting because the club is growing. We got a bunch of really good kids at the gym. We've got our own space. We're sharing it with, you know, Justin and his powerlifting team and there's Which is good. Yeah, and there's I there's, love having powerlifters there. Yeah. I mean, you said you said that the other day cuz it teaches people to kind of be a little bit tougher in the gym, right? Yeah. You know, and then also at the space, there's also great, you know, place to just do regular lifting with all the machines and everything else that you need. And there's, and there's a rig and you can do some functional fitness kind of stuff and yeah. all that kind of good stuff. But let's be real honest. Uh, the weightlifting team is going to kind of take over that place. So, uh, between, but, well, yeah, uh, th- only because, you know, whatever weightlifters come in the door, I take, Yeah, but um, Justin's much more selective about who he lets on his powerlifting team. Which I can understand that. Because he wants to keep – because he writes all the programs yeah, for him. he's only got so much time that he can yeah. do, plus run his business and work with you. And so he wants else. to keep that limited. I completely understand. You know, and, you know, I always decide – I always say yes before I figure out just what it's going to take, which is probably not the best strategy. So, yes, you can join the club. Well, yeah, but – That's 25 lifters I have to write programs for Yeah, now. but also <laughs> most people don't last most past a month or two. It's true. So, so many new people come in, they're gone in two months. So if somebody asked me the other day, I was like, oh, what's that new person's name? Like, I don't know yet. I'll figure it out in two months if they're still here. Yeah. You know, because it's Why just... isn't their name on the board? Well, when they get in the meet, we'll get, in the, get yeah. their name on the exactly. board. Exactly. <laughs> and that's kind of how that works. So yeah. you kind of have to earn your place, you know, kind of in that sport. So yeah. that is what it is. But I'll tell you what, let's let's kind of wrap this up. This has been a whole lot of fun, Dan. Thank you for your time. Oh, I, sure. I greatly appreciate it. Sure. So where can people go to kind of find out more about you and what you do? That's a good question. <laughs> Where do they go? <laughs> so obviously they can go to rubbercityweightlifting.org. Okay. And they yeah. can see your website there, which which you and I put together. So it looks like a third grader did it. Sorry, but it's true. So bear with us. We're, we're going to try There's to get, free jerk box plans on we're, there. We're going to try to get some smart people to kind of do that for us, but we're not there yet. So t- until a, now it works. Couple email addresses and a phone number. Yep. And, and, that's, uh, and that's all you need. Yep. So at um, unrivaled strength at 4264 or 4624. I'm not sure the address. If you guys go to rubber city org, it's on there. The address is on there. That'll all take right. care of all that. Um, all right. What, what's your Instagram? Uh, rubber city weightlifting. Rubber city, rubber weightlifting city weightlifting on Instagram. And then you can find you on Facebook. What is it? Coach, Co- Daniel Coach Bell? Dan Bell. Coach Dan Bell. Yeah. You know, and that, that kind of takes care of everything else. And obviously if you guys are in the Ohio area, get your ass over to rubber city and like, just shake Dan's hand, let him do some coaching. You know, he's he's really good at this stuff. You know, and we have we and he have, sucks at promotion. Well, there's that, but <laughs> we we got we got a, a a great club. You guys can drop in and train, or if you guys want to actually do some serious lifting, you know, join the team and we'll start kicking ass and taking names. So Dan, greatly appreciate your time, and uh, everybody you, else. We will see you guys later. All right. Well, maybe we had too much beer. (laughs) There was a little bit of stumbling in there, but nonetheless, uh, we had a good time. Hopefully we gave you guys some great nuggets and you got to know Dan a little bit. So he's definitely going to be in the podcast a lot more. You guys are going to really enjoy getting to know him. He's a lot of fun. Yes, he can be offensive, but that's what we love about him. So stay tuned. We got some big shows coming up that you guys are going to enjoy, and we will see you guys next time on the Uncensored Humanity Podcast. (laughs) 